are live with the one and only Matt Economist. Uh, just, I'm going to say at the beginning of the stream this time so that anybody who is coming uh, to this video after the fact gets a sense of what we're doing here. Um, so there will actually be a podcast available for this. I'll leave a link in the description once the video is complete on YouTube. I'll just uh, download the uh, the video and then add the audio to a podcast. So check out the link below for that. Uh, but um, for the moment, we're going to go over a bunch of stuff with Matt Economist here. We're going to talk about measurement rigs in particular because mm -hmm. uh, he has been super useful and instrumental in helping us figure out what measurement rig to get. And uh, we'll talk about all kinds of other stuff as well, like, you know, frequency response and, and you know, headphones. And at the end, we'll do a Q&A. Uh, so save your questions for the end. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's let's dive right in with just getting a sense of who Matt Economist is, because you know, for people like I see Metal Five Seven One in the chat. For us, we've you know kind of relied on you uh, for information in general. And I think like I think the first time I talked to you, we we even like I think we blew up Reddit with and we pulled you know Marvy out of his SBAF corner and. Oh gosh. <laughs> there was a lot of fun that was had with you know f figuring out whether or not floyd tool is right about stuff but <laughs> oh my uh, God. i didn't even remember that actually yeah. but yes i recall that <laughs> i now. think that was the first time, yeah but uh no uh, matt economist has been yeah very helpful for all of that stuff so why don't i ask um you know basically who are you and and what do you do uh, i know uh, that uh, you've done some modding with you know cascadia audio modding the um t50rps the Talos, but I, I wanted to ask you, like, what's sort of your your background, and how did you get into the headphone world, and specifically the measurement world as well? Okay, so ultimately, it all starts with so, sort of analogously to Z, Zach at ZMF, Dan at Dan Clark Audio. I made a T fifty RP mod. I listened to it. I was like, "Hey, that sounds better than the original version." I wonder why. And then. I send it to a couple of people. They're like, hey, this sounds good. You could sell this. And, uh, man, that was a pretentious thing. Um, kind of wish they hadn't told me that sometimes. <laughs> but for getting into the measurements, I, I came into audio from basically out, out of college from an econ degree. That's what I was studying at the time. Um, so I, I didn't actually come in from the technical side, so I was kind of coming in sight unseen on that front. And initially I tried to do things sort of by ear and, you know, by the seat of my pants, I guess. Um, but I found that I really couldn't rely on my ears. Uh, and please, please clip that so that you can bring that up <laughs> in any future. What? It makes sense though. It's the equivalent of like you know when you're if you're color grading for video, you can go like color colorblind a bit, and everything starts to sound starts to look a little bit normal. I think the same is kind of true for audio. If you, especially like well, this is something I've become aware of with EQ and stuff like that. But yeah, I'll let you continue. So after a lot of chasing my tail, I got interested in measurements. And, you know, I, we all saw tiles measurements back in well, I mean back in the day. Now I guess rest in <laughs> peace. Um, and so I was sort of tangentially aware of them, and they were interesting, but then I was like, okay, well, these have to be useful to make things sound good, right? And uh, I figured at the time, well, it seems pretty easy. It won't take more than a month to get my head around that. That's worth the time. <laughs> right. S several years later, many years <laughs> later. <laughs> right. 
So you're you got into it, you know, modding the the T50 RP, and that is the the Talos two yeah. now, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's I currently I have nothing on the market. Uh, the Talos two, I dropped sales of that one once I really got underway on designing my own drivers. That's knock on wood, hopefully in its final stages. So hopefully I'll be having in-house stuff and just fully in-house stuff coming pretty soon. Awesome. Well, that's exciting. But basically, you, you know. Uh, the the trajectory has been very similar to many of the let's say celebrated you know hobbyist turned manufacturers um, for you yep. is, is that correct oh yeah absolutely I mean awesome. I, I think to some degree because you pattern on you know your precedents but also just because once you try to make a headphone you realize that it's actually shockingly hard to make a headphone physically <laughs> right right see that's the thing is I always think to myself like man it would be really cool to you know, get into trying to make headphones or even just starting to mod headphones. And everybody who's gotten into it says it's way harder than you think, right? Even people who are doing the modding thing, it there seems to be also like an additional difficulty in, in terms of like getting something like that to market. You know, you see headphones like um, the, the um, I'm blanking on the name right now, the Borealis, for example, oh, yes, where it's uh, guys who've done similar... Yeah, yeah, guys who've done similar things, and it's, um, you know, it's taken them, you know, years to to get to this stage, right? Where they're now, they now finally have a headphone, and you know that they can, that they can sell. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot more that goes into it that's that I don't think about when I think, yeah, it would be nice to do this at some point. Well, but. I think a lot of it depends on what you're trying to do as well. If you just want to make something to listen to, I think that that's surprisingly easy, and mm -hmm. and I think more people should really just sort of you know, throw their nets in the sea with just sort of random, try it out, you know, read a few papers, you know, get, I don't know, get whatever the cheap measurement rig that is the least terrible at the moment is, <laughs> um, sort of try to figure out how stuff works, but getting it to production for, for me, it really makes you realize that the mechanical engineering of headphones, at least for me, was the really hard part. If I, if I only had had to do the acoustics, I think I would already have multiple in-house planar magnetics on the market, but it was everything else that really, and you have to do it with every headphone. Right. Um, so, so, uh, is your, is the one, I don't, I don't want to give anything away here if you don't want to mention it, but <laughs> oh, no, that's fine. is the one you're working on going to be planar magnetic? Yes. Uh, it's okay. uh, in-house planar magnetic driver. I, uh, I basically everything I'm doing myself, actually, I'm etching the diaphragms myself, putting the resists on myself. Cool. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it will be, I'm hoping it will be interesting to people. Do you think, um, I've talked with, you know, Oratory about this as well, but mm -hmm. do you think that there's, do you think it's easier or more difficult to use a planar driver compared to like a moving coil driver? I mean. Or, or no difference. Mm, <laughs> it's, that's a deep question. Um, yeah. I think that for the normal way that you make a planar magnetic, it, the, or that people tend to it is easier. Mm. A, a normal planar magnetic headphone, if you think about your Odyssey, if you think about your Hi-Fi Man, is sealed front volume, open rear volume, no connection between them. It's very, basically a Grado, if you think mm -hmm. about it. Or maybe not a Grado, but like, uh, I don't know, like a, one of the very early uh, closed front, open back headphones. I'm blanking on example. I guess a Stax would be an example of very early Stax, like the SR1. Um, so when you, you say you say closed front, you mean like sealed around the ear? 
Yes, but you can have a headphone that's sealed around the ear that doesn't have its front volume, the area in front of the driver closed. Oh, right, and right, 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 right. Yeah. An example of this would be uh, Foster's headphones. The, mm -hmm. the Denon and yeah. the Fostex TH series all have a very complicated acoustic linkage between their front and back and between the right. front and the outside. But if you look at an Odyssey, it's just a driver, basically a sealed area between the driver and your ear and the driver pushes your eardrum right it's pretty simple um right the standard principle for like open back headphones well for pointers because th that's pointers, the thing. yes yes yeah. if, if you look at like an hd 600 it's actually much more acoustically complicated in terms of how its front is designed there's an integrated link between the front and the back which has damping there's a leak that exists between the front and the outside so and you have to do that to get, I don't know, a good sound from a normal moving coil driver. For a planar magnetic, they tend to be a bit closer to what we would prefer, I don't want to say naturally, but just if you throw them in there tightly right. coupled to the ear. And that, I think, makes them, in some respects, makes them simpler to get to a place where people are happy with them. I don't think that necessarily it has to be easier to implement them, and I think that you could do quite interesting and complex things with them, but I think that the average planar magnetic that is good is probably more, it's probably simpler than the average moving coil, which is good. Right. Okay. Um, so, I mean, that's a super exciting uh, headphone that I actually wasn't even aware you were developing. But, yeah. Uh... <laughs> I, uh, I try to keep tight-lipped on stuff until it happens because I've had a lot of stuff that exists on my test bench that has right. never existed, e.g. Okay. my electrostatic thing. Okay, so we'll we'll knock on wood for this then. <laughs> yep, very big knock on wood there, but right. uh, here's hoping. Cool. Fingers crossed. Cool. And so uh, is this, is the like headphone development then, um, man man manufacturing eventually, is this a full-time thing for you or is this just something that you're doing on the side or... Yeah. Uh, this is, at the moment, pretty much a full-time thing for me. It's, uh, part particularly as I've been, I've, the, doing just the acoustic stuff, I think it was, I was able to sort of juggle it with other things. At the moment, I'm pretty much, whenever I'm not doing acoustic stuff, I'm yelling angrily at machines and hitting them with wrenches. <laughs> uh, sounds like the dream. Um, uh... when... When we spoke before, you mentioned that like a lot, a lot of what you were doing was looking at um, like edge cases and and outliers and things like that. Um, when you're when you're testing stuff, um, oh, metrologically. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, what is the, um, what's the reason for that? Well, I mean, like everyone agrees on the normal case, right? Mm -hmm. Like no, everyone basically wants frequency response and everyone has a general agreement on what frequency response should be because you know, whether whether you're a diffuse field target person loro target free field harman they're all basically an ear resonance then either it's flat at the low frequencies or there's a little bump up but they're not that different so within the context of normal measurements everyone since tile started doing measurements on a ku100 hasn't really been that far apart in what they want and you know 
with with the proper grains of salt, you can compare and analyze all of that stuff pretty well. And that's the most important shit, to be clear. Like, that is mm-hmm. that is what is important. That's why, for example, Oratory only publishes just frequency response measurements in the linear band. And I think that for a reviewer or for someone who just wants to know what to buy, that's probably the most important. Well, I mean, that's definitely the most important. That's probably the only thing you need. Right. But as a designer, you don't just want to characterize the typical case. Right. So... When I'm trying to, it's sort of like um, penetration testing in uh, in security and software and stuff. You know, if you're just testing how something interacts with a normal user, you don't necessarily care that if you knock on it three times at this angle, then the door falls off. But as a designer, you should care about that. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So, actually, I mean, the reason why I was asking this, I think, is it was pointed at something a little bit different. I was because I was wondering, gotcha. you know, what. I was thinking like edge cases in terms of like back when Tile was doing, you know, um, square wave and stuff like that, you know, thinking, you know, maybe this is a way to push the boundaries on the ability to discern information from, um, from measurements. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it depends on what information that you're looking right, for. Right, right, right. Um, a square wave in a sense. So if you think about what a square wave is, it's really a sine wave and then an infinite sum of odd harmonics, right? So mm-hmm. the main thing that you see with a square wave is bandwidth. But right. headphones are quite bandwidth limited. Tile, I think, liked them because they visualized frequency response and phase relationships together. But you can simply pull the same information out of frequency response in that case because of, you know, headphones being minimum phase and the fact that we do impulse responses for them. Right. Um I think square waves, I don't know. I, I, I never saw their appeal, to be frank. I think what, I mean, with one exception, one exception, Tyler used square waves to te- to check seal while he was mounting headphones on heads. I think that was quite clever. Right. I remember seeing that video where he used the Odyssey one and he was, he showed where it was, the seal was broken. Yep. That, that was quite <laughs> clever, but that's really yeah. just showing where he's using it to measure frequency response. Right. Right. For, for edge cases, a lot of stuff can still be measured with a fairly conventional frequency response measurement, like linearity or broken, you know, broken coupling behavior. You can measure both of those just with the same exact frequency response measurement and still get all of the edge case information you want. Right. There, I'm trying to think, are there cases where I would want a different measurement? I mean, there are cases where I do different measurements, but I'm not sure if there are cases where you need different measurements much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it depends on what you define as different. Right. There's, I don't think there's a case in headphones where you don't need something based on a Fourier transform. Right. I, But, you know, I think that something like an FFT, like what you're looking at right here, which is the Fourier transform of my voice, um, as opposed to frequency response and is is interesting sometimes when you want to look at for example the harmonic spectrum of a sine wave or you know the distortion products of some other more complex stimulus because if you think about it, what this is doing is taking the input and breaking it down into level by frequency band so if you had a one kilohertz tone and there was nothing else it would just be a vertical bar right at 1k right but in practice, we have noise, yeah. obviously. I mean, like, yeah, I, my voice isn't quite gravelly enough to be producing 20 hertz, so that's noise in my environment and noise in my converters and stuff. Um, and, you know, we have distortion products. We have harmonics. We have 
in some cases we even have subharmonics we have for for multi-tone stuff we have intermodulation products and yep. the audibility of these things is variable so uh some people just produce you know aggregate figures like thd uh, and the thd and you know some people publish Arda's harmonics, you know, like they have a they have a few harmonics that it extracts from impulse response. But I think that that might be less for me that's less useful than looking directly at the spectrum of a sine wave because right. sometimes things go a little bit eccentric in ways that are not captured just by counting the first three or four harmonics. Right. I mean, but also I mean essentially what you're talking about is like in uh you know the reasons why when you hit a piano note you don't just hear one you don't just hear one frequency you see like if you were to see that visually represented the way that your voice is right now oh yeah it would be yeah <laughs> yeah it'd be, it'd be it. a, a string of of <laughs> exactly. harmonics yeah although pianos are particularly strange because my understanding is that pianos uh being string resonators don't actually have harmonics that are perfectly aligned with the bass frequency it's one like so mm. it's it's not actually even multiples. I don't actually know this much because I'm not a musician, but <laughs> I looked into tuning pianos once, and apparently it's why it's like a skill. Oh, it's it's a real pain. <laughs> as, as someone, I, I used to actually play, um, and uh, it would. I, I know this was a big issue because everybody was also stressing about like where the microphone placement should be for recording pianos accurately because of how weird uh, some of the resonances were. Um, and how variable they were. Oh, yeah. But I mean, recording instruments accurately is a hard yeah. question. <laughs> um, but, yeah, just getting back to the to the headphone stuff yes. here. Um, okay, so so that's why you're looking at edge, edge cases. And I guess, I, I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense that... I'm just thinking of other cases of headphones. Like, for example, um, there's a headphone that I have here, the, the Andover PM50, where I think it's possible to get it to sound okay. If you only uh, listen to it with like by pressing it in a certain way and like holding it in place in a certain way, and it makes me think anybody who was oh, maybe goodness. you know measuring that one only looked at that as the as the you know frequency response or, or if they even measured it at all, not realizing that in all these other cases of how a person how it might be seated on the head, for example, it would be totally different and it'll sound. Well, I, I don't know. I think it sounds particularly bad, but I'll do a review of it soon. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, but, okay, I wanted to get into um, the measurements themselves. Um, All right. And I want to ask what you think about... Um, well, first, let's talk about the measurement rigs. So for anybody who's unaware, um, we recently, we being headphones.com, recently uh, purchased a, head, uh, a measurement rig based on uh, Matt Economist's recommendation. We ended up going with the gross 43ag um and shine all of fame yeah <laughs> with the with the latest pin and everything um and uh so we're you know super excited to get that up and running but that's also a measurement uh rig that is i mean if you if you look at like the spectrum spectra of like what's what else is out there like the bnk five you know 5128 and stuff like that like the this is a rabbit hole that goes very deep and also very uh, there's a very wide range in price 
<laughs> for you know how much some of this stuff costs. Well, it's very wide range, but it doesn't really go that far down, unfortunately. No, that's right. It doesn't go that far down, but I mean, it, it can go very high. <laughs> yep. Um, and so, but what I'm, what I was just sort of thinking about is, um, with the forty three AG, I mean, that's that's on the uh, like less expensive side of things, uh, comparatively to you know like the five one two eight. And I wanted to get your take on at least as far as reviewers are concerned or publications. Um, do you think there's more value in perfect accuracy for information above like, you know, 8, 10K Hertz? Uh, or, because that's more difficult, more challenging to do. Um, or is there more value in consistency across um, uh, publications? So for example, if everybody has a 43AG, um, or maybe a 45, whatever it is, right? Like if everybody has the same measurement rig, is that more valuable than that one rig that's the 5128 that one person has? Um, what's your take on that? Well, I think it depends on if it's from the perspective of a reviewer or from the review consumers to, to some degree. Like, as a reviewer, if I really wanted to distinct myself and... Mm. Like, let's say I'm a reviewer who really wants to make a splash and say, you can't trust anyone but me. Having something like the 5128 would mean that I could technically be correct in saying, oh, no one else is as good as my system. You can, you know, you should always take me as the definitive word. Right. But from an end user perspective, the actual difference is not very high. And the fact that there will be comparability issues between that and the existing standards may actually make it less useful to anyone who's reading it. So right. it sort of yeah. depends. Like... Uh, given the very high variability of high frequency, and by high frequency I mean past 8 to 10k measurements, and for that matter, HRTF in that band, it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's a crapshoot. Obviously it is measurable, there are patterns, but it's not something that I would say is in any respect worth $40,000, and particularly not worth $40,000 and breaking from compatibility with... Mm -hmm what we have from Harman to date, although I'm told they're going to be doing something with the 5128, so maybe not forever. Um, and, you know, I think probably most importantly for most people, being able to compare to the surprisingly large now body of people who are doing public measurements with mm -hmm. 43 AGs. Right, so that's, that's kind of my thinking as well. I mean, we've talked before about how this measurement, measurement stuff is, it's constantly a moving target. Where you're constantly mm. trying to, you know, keep up with whatever the if the five one two eight is pushing the boundaries, right? And you know, maybe there'll be another thing in the future. But um, I'm just thinking of like that situation where um, when the uh, mini DSP ears, which is behind me, uh, <laughs> uh, when the mini DSP ears came out, and, and every all of us in a sense. yeah, exactly, right? Like every reviewer ended up getting one because it was so cheap, and it it was, I mean, I suppose better than a flat plate, but. Um, it is there's there's always that question mark when you see publications that have a measurement posted using the mini dsp ears rig because it's not industry standard it's not as accurate as uh, you know it ideally would be and but then the, the question is like well where's the value in that and i think there was a lot of value in the in the comparability aspects because everybody happened to have one so you didn't necessarily have the headphones somebody else had but you might have had the same or you didn't have yeah Say you wanted to compare different headphones using the same rig, and even though there's it's total variability even on the same rig, at least there was some sort of constant there when other people were using the same system, right? Um, now, 
um, the, I'm led to understand that that it's not as simple as just saying, you know, everybody using the same rig means that we can actually compare measurements across different headphones like that. But the idea, at least in principle, I think was kind of cool. And now I'm thinking to myself, maybe if everybody starts getting these, you know, whatever the next step up from that is, right? Maybe there's a body of knowledge there or body of information there that is comparable and is consistent that is more useful to the reader or the end, you know, the, the perspective buyer um, than the super, you know, the boundary pushing one, right? Um, well, absolutely. And, and in yeah. theory, it, you know, if we think about it, the thing about the ears and about earless flat plates and other mm, flawed measurement systems is that they can have the difference between two headphones on an ears, on an earless flat plate, whatever might be different than the difference between those two headphones on your ears. So that is to say, the rig doesn't reflect how you'll hear them different mm -hmm. in all cases. And that that's the real problem of them, right? Mm -hmm. But right. for something that's anthropomorphic, that is actually mirroring how your head works properly, in theory, those differences should be fairly constant. Mm -hmm. And that means, in theory, compensated data from a good rig, whatever that is, should be generally comparable that's that's sort of the interesting thing like the nice thing about everyone having the exact same rig is that even uncompensated data should be pretty you know common between them but in theory if you have you know the diffuse field hrtf of this hats and that hats their outputs should look pretty similar once they're compensated for that so right. that's so to some degree you can actually have commonality all the way back to I don't know, like the like probably the first Kimar. If you uh, if you could find data or data from it, that would be like. I don't know who would publish that, but maybe <laughs> Mead Killian did. Mm -hmm. So, right. so even though it's moving in the sense that we get better, like there are tweaks. In theory, there should be a lot of agreement between all of these systems across time, for the same reason that there's agreement across what people hear. You know, in reality, you know, like you and I probably don't hear an HD six hundred that different, right? Um, and actually, I mean, on that subject, what do you, what do you? Mad think economist about... voice has too much THD. Not good slash ten. Yes, I should, <laughs> I should definitely not have left the the THD display on. I don't know why artist shows that with the non sign stimulus. Uh, um, but yeah, on that subject, what do you, what do you think about, uh, uh headphone sound demos we using you know uh, potentially more accurate rigs more accurate systems is the compounding effect still going to make kind of invalidate them or is there ever going to be a point where we can start actually getting some information from sound demos even just you know comparably it's a hard question mm -hmm. i think in premise a sound demo can work quite well but the circumstances where it will work well I don't think can happen with the current tools available to end users so you said the compounding thing that's pretty much the exact extent of it if you recorded a headphone on a rig equalize out whatever the rig is adding to it <clears throat> pardon me I do have some THD in my voice then play it back on a headphone that was perfectly flat 
you know, that was perfectly mirroring whatever the proper HRTF of whoever is wearing it was on. That would sound like the editions of the original headphone. Because the only, the chain there would essentially have cancelled out the recording ear and the playback headphone. Right. But, where are you going to get, you know, where are you going to get the headphone that is perfectly flat? And if you already have the headphone that perfectly matches, you know, whatever the target is, why are you listening to other headphones? <laughs> so that's actually a really good point that I hadn't thought about before. <laughs> Um, but I mean, th that's always the, the, the concern that I've had with this stuff is that you don't know what that's going to end up being on the headphones on your specific ears, right? So mm -hmm. even if you think the headphone measures flat or it, it measures relatively, you know, flat, uh, based on a compensation that you like, um, you're, you're, you're still not getting that measurement for how it is on your, on your ears. Um, yeah, well, and, and how it is on your ears is relative to your HRTF, which yes, is... The... Yes, exactly. Yeah. Also, yeah, flat okay. as a concept is one that probably merits more poking, but that's... Right. That's that's an issue aside for just a second, because <laughs> I, want, I wanted to have an add-on here, because I actually have an idea about this. <clears throat> okay. And someday, it's one of the many projects on my test bench that probably won't turn into a product, but I, I think is potentially... Um, one of the things that could work for a headphone demo is if people listening had in-ear microphones. Because if you had an in-ear microphone and you could actually use that to equalize the playback headphone, you could right. actually pretty much null out some portion of the transfer function between you know you and the recording. Like, let's say that I have a blocked canal mic, I record a headphone, you have a blocked canal mic, you equalize the headphone you're wearing dead flat not compensated flat just dead flat at that microphone at your at your ear entrance in theory this whatever music or whatever i play gets modified by my outer ear the headphone i was wearing and your ear canal and that's all mm -hmm. and that would be probably about as close as you're going to get mm -hmm. the the issue is that that relies on uh people having the mics yeah. which don't exist right no. now I've, I've, I've put together a few of them but they were really annoying to build and none of the, the binaural mics that exist right now are yeah. are proper for this unfortunately well except for like something like Smith Smith's realizer mics probably would work so if right. you have if you have a Smith realizer please phone in now <laughs> yeah but see that was the thing I always thought with sound demos is that it was a really cool idea but at, at present I I almost felt like it was a bit almost like irresponsible because the people who would be listening to them, even if they had the reference headphone, they um, they wouldn't necessarily know that. They wouldn't necessarily understand that the comp the comp compounding effect is doing what it's doing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's it's exactly as you say. Like, you that's the challenge: is how do you get <laughs> how do you make that happen in a in a mass you know audience kind of world, right? And I just, I just don't see it as being uh, doable at the moment. There was a concept that some DSP software, it, it's not, um, it's not the one from the Baltics. Oh gosh, how am I forgetting their name? Um, it's they're like the biggest. It's it's yeah. like the one that's the competitor to uh, the um, uh, Sonoworks. Yeah, it's it's one of Sonoworks's competitors had this oh, okay. had this software, so I'm I'm really bungling this. But they they had this interesting concept where they'd measured a whole bunch of headphones, and rather than doing a sound demo, they would equalize 
they would basically have an EQ profile that changed one headphone to have a similar frequency response to the other headphone as they'd measured it. And their measurements weren't that great, and the EQs were kind of so-so, so it wasn't perfect. But I think that that was probably about as close as you'd get right. to a sound demo with what we have now. Right. And it's actually, uh, I kind of wondered why folks like um, Yako Pasanen, the fellow with the auto-EQ database, haven't done more like that. Although, of course, you know, it's only as good as the measurements you're drawing it from. Your units may differ. Your on-head results may differ, etc. Right. Um, sorry, just somebody says in the chat, Olive has those uh, in-ear binaural mics. Yeah, what we're talking about is the person who would be listening would have to have something like that as well. Regarding just... Olive, his mics are a little bit flawed, although I am actually trying to get a pair of my mics to him to see if that can uh, help cool. with things a bit. Yeah. But see, like, that's, it's, it's such an appealing idea. I think it would be really cool to be able to do that. Like, I'd want that to be a, something that would be like, it, it would more than just comparatively predict what something would, would sound like. Because there are certain things that you, I think you can find there. Like, um, Metal, I think, was talking about before about the, um, listening to his recording of the uh, HD 58X, for example. And you can actually hear the grain that's there. Um, and so it, it, to me, it's like it would be really cool if you could make that like demonstrable beyond just um, you know the the comparable thing um, that it is right now. Um, but uh, I guess we can move on from that because I did have questions about um, uh, <clears throat> yeah I wanted to get your take on um, where. Uh, where measurements are going to go, headphone measurements are going to go in the future. Um, and I've talked to, again, to Oratory about this, and I think you were actually on that podcast at the end. Yeah, yeah, um, I busted but... <laughs> in there. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, by all means. Uh, but do you think we'll be, a we'll be able to, at some point, look at a graph of, let's say, unsmoothed or uh, all the information available, um, frequency, frequency response data, and then be able to point to how it's going to sound in ways that we aren't doing right now. So for example, can we hold up a graph and say, here's where soundstage is, here's where detail is, here's where, you know, dynamics is, and all that kind of stuff. Or is that just, because it seems to be that there's still a disconnect to some degree between the captured information and our understanding of what that stuff means. And do you think that's going to go forward in any meaningful way? <laughs> well, okay, now... I think that there's sort of two categories of things to separate out there, and I'm, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I come from, some people call it the objective or objectivist side of the hobby, so I'm even prior to getting into the really right. academic and professional stuff, but it's only been more intense from there. Um, so I'm more inclined towards that side of things. But for... Subjective things that we don't measure right now, there's sort of two groups of them. There's things that we generally, that definitely exist insofar as we have an identified consistent phenomenon across people. We just don't necessarily have an ideal way to measure it. And a good example of that would be spatiality and localization. Like, that, that is something that is being studied right now because you can pin it down to study it. Mm -hmm. 
And in fact, there I can actually point to some things that might be indicative there, and I have some of my own theories. On the other hand, something like grain, where it's a word that people use, but it's not entirely clear that everyone uses it the same way, that they're pointing to the same heard thing. So we would need to first see that people are hearing the same thing before we could even potentially find measurements to find what it is. Because really, at the end of the day, what we look for is correlation. Both correlation right. and theoretical justification for it. Like, that's, you know, induction. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, for, for a lot of audiophile things that people perceive, same thing with dynamics, I think, First, you would have to you would have to be able to see if people can consistently agree this thing has dynamics, this thing doesn't, this thing has grain, this thing doesn't. Not not universally, obviously, but just enough that there is a consistent pattern. And once you've done that, then you can go looking for what it is. And I think you probably can find it. And I don't think it's a limitation of our current measurement capability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it may be a limitation to the fact that we haven't actually documented what the commonalities are. Right. Um, so you effectively need to get all the headphone reviewers in a room. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't have to be headphone reviewers. If, if, if these are audible phenomena, then, right. you know, if you can find a headphone that a bunch of reviewers say, or maybe a group of headphones that reviewers say have these traits, throw them into a sample with headphones that don't. Mm-hmm see you know see what people see if a, a group of people who are not primed to hear it hear it and then look at what behaviors are common between the headphones and it might right. not be stuff that you see just in a single frequency response plot um classic example of this in speakers is power compression mm. you know you won't see compression in one frequency response plot but it exists how do you see right. it take two frequency response plots two different levels See how it changes by frequency. Right. You'd have to presumably just have all the data, potential data, available to you. Yeah, and, and uh, depending on what people hear and the circumstances under which they hear it, you, you can figure out where to go looking. When people hear speakers as lacking dynamics or being compressed, because they literally are, it's more revealed in dynamic music and it's more revealed at high listening levels. And that gives us an indication of where we should go looking. And we, indeed, we figured out tests to generally show that. And for headphones, we can as well. And for, for anything we hear, we can as well. But first we need to know what it is and where to go looking. Right, so the first step to solving a lot of this stuff, or at least investigating a lot of this stuff is getting agreement on well, the terms that we're using and that we're actually talking about the same phenomena. Exactly. Um, which I, I do think, I mean, this is something that I've come across even just with, you know, a lot of the videos that I've done and, you know, the articles and just talking to people. It's like people talk about this stuff in ways that are totally different, even though they might be describing the same thing. Um, so, and then, if, you know, on top of it, the, the fact that unit variation is a thing makes it even more challenging to get that kind of agreement unless you're actually physically listening to the same headphone um, and just like you know in the same room it's um, a very difficult thing to get a consistent agreement on how something sounds because yeah. we have i think a much looser connection to our ears than we do to our eyes they're obviously fundamental to us but we often fall back on descriptions that are a lot more like 
descriptions of you know food or or wine tasters when we're describing sound aspects yeah. i think because we don't have the ability to really articulate you know you can't say something is square sounding in the same way that you right. can see that something is square edged right um it's, it's funny it reminds me a little bit of some of the stuff that i was i remember studying a long time ago about um how vision is uh is actually non-Euclidean. We're we're much more visually visually oriented people, like beings than than you know auditory or anything else, like dogs of sense of smell, for example, right? So mm -hmm. for us, it's vision. And um, I remember studying about how vision is weirdly non-Euclidean, but our brains correct for that. And the way that you can test this is just look at the corner of any room that you know is a right angle, and just think about if if you were to just try and draw that, you would actually have to draw it at a different angle from a right angle at a non-euclidean angle because uh because of the distance that you are away from it right so you only you're only getting the apparent object and i i wonder if one of the things with sound that we're getting is we're often well potentially our brains are correcting for different things with sound um as well um that we're not, not able to pay attention to the way that like that's a fairly easy test that you can do with vision but I, I imagine there's all kinds of stuff that happens with sound that we're not actually able to decouple our mental process from as easily and then this well, might also lead to some of the confusion there as well well decouple i mean that's you don't want to decouple it <laughs> if you if you if you were just hearing things exactly as it sounded without any psychoacoustic right, effect right <laughs> everything would sound incredibly shrill because of your ear gain yeah. there'd be no yeah, bass exactly. <laughs> yeah but I'm, I'm even just thinking of like stuff like soundstage and and you know depth and all these audiophile terms that we're talking about like it, it might be one of the reasons why people you know have such different ways of describing things because they're really just describing an experience not necessarily anything to do with the way that something actually sounds like it's just their experience um, for soundstage in particular we have a convenience that there's a reference in physicality you know like mm. people are talking about things as being placed in space yeah um some people have done a number of tests of that some of them have just been subjective um for example, what's called in-head localization is when people hear sounds coming from within or very close to the head as opposed to being out in the room. And there have been tests of things that influence that in headphones and speakers, actually. You can get that effect in speakers, which is weird. Um, but some of them have even done things like testing what affects how accurately people will place a sound source on different planes mm -hmm. and there are things people think with spatiality and headphones <laughs> yeah okay um all right so, so sorry you're talking about yeah hammershoy mahler etc yeah i mean basically i i think that we shouldn't see there's being multiple dfhrtfs for the population average there's one we've taken a number of different pictures they aren't all quite the same and if you take any individual, it's going to be a little different. But generally speaking, it agrees, I think, quite a bit. At least that's my read of the data, which is relatively... I mean, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm by any means the most read on the subject, but I've read a fair number of papers about it. Right. Um, so then... So one of the things that... I mean, you talked about a, a base shelf or slight base shelf under 100 hertz. Is that mm -hmm. correct? So... Yeah. 
the, the notion of a stitched together curve that takes both the base shelf from Harmon and the diffuse field treble, for example, might to some people sound a little bit more V-shaped than what they might classically think is neutral, right? Uh, just because it's it's now it's taken two different curves and one of them has base and more extra base and the other one happens to have a little it happens to be a little bit brighter. Um, do you think that it matters what people consider to be kind of like classically neutral uh, as far as like if you're trying to develop you know a, a, a frequent or a headphone with a certain a certain frequency response or do you think it should just matter if people like it as in a kind of like a Harman preference type curve? I mean, it depends on the on the purpose of the headphone. Right. Like, if you're trying to make a headphone whose whole pitch is being accurate to diffuse field, then ideally its frequency response should be accurate to diffuse field. If you're trying to make a headphone and your pitch for it is it sounds good, then probably you want to design it so that people will say this sounds good. Right. Um, with ratings, where they went wrong is that it wasn't that they had the shelf and that they used the, the treble features from Diffuse Field. It was mm -hmm. that they they didn't just put a shelf on the base of Diffuse Field. Basically, they had drawn, essentially, the connection between the low frequencies and the high frequencies, but this didn't actually mirror how the actual ear resonance rise works. And that causes problems. But... Mm. Would it cause problems just to add a shelf to DF? I mean, that's, you know, you say neutral. I think neutral neutral is like a, a question that is sort of being begged here, and it's really the big one. What is mm -hmm. neutral? And, and that's, right. that's not actually that simple to answer, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, if, if we go all the... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say that... that... Uh, I, I was more trying to think of like, do you think the expectation of a kind of classic neutrality is? Well, but what uh, is classic neutrality? Right. So that's, but that's that's. I, I guess the. It, it depends if you want a Harman uh, target or you want diffuse field or whatever, right? But um, the the sense of adding that base shelf to a diffuse field target um, might potentially cut across what the assumption of neutrality is. And so when you're representing something like that, the way that ratings was, and saying, okay, this curve that we've devised here, this hybrid hybrid target, that's neutral. Does and then you know you say you have something that perfectly matches that curve, and it's it, it'll sound you know a little bit more V-shaped to somebody. Um, do you do you think that's a problem? I guess <laughs> I guess that there's two two different questions <laughs> that are part of that. Well. A target's, in, in general, a compensation target's purpose is to show us how much whatever we're measuring, in this case a headphone, differs from whatever we want. Mm -hmm. But, you know, why do we want what we want? That's kind of a different question. Mm -hmm. TL thought we should have diffuse field because it was part of his whole concept of an accurate recording chain from a, a mannequin recording, you know, from a from a, a binaural head recording to your eardrum. And and right. that was he had a very big concept of accuracy. And Olive has, you know, a concept that we want something to be accurate in the sense that it sounds like speakers in room to people, which is approximately what Harmon is. I mean it's mm -hmm. it's also 
equivalently you could say Harmon's in-room speaker target is like good headphones but either mm -hmm. way um, another target could be devised I, a number of websites have come up with their own the question is what it's for right you know do you want to have like, here's an example uh, Olive had a paper I think it was in 2018 or 2019 he uh he had segments of listeners who preferred different frequency responses. So some people liked more bass, some people liked less bass relative to the Harmon target. You could have, just as with that as an example, you could have a set of different targets and let people sort of self-select themselves into saying, I'm part of the people who really want it to rumble. I'm part of the people who really want some extra sparkle. So... Or you could just, you know, you can come up with a target of your own contriving. You can just say, this is the, the traits that have sounded the best to me in general. That's, uh, I think, mm -hmm. what the IAM reviewer Critical has done. Right. Um, I, I thought he was publishing mostly raw measurements just because of the nature of the, the rig that he had. Oh, although I guess, no, not for, not for IAMs necessarily. Uh, oh, no, yeah, no, it, he's, it, is, um, it is raw for IAMs as well, I think. He has his own compensation, which he sort of, as I understand it, basically drew by hand based on what he likes in an EQ slash right, in, a, right, right. in an IM. Right. Um, I guess the reason why this stuff is interesting to me is because I'm now faced with that same question of, okay, do we take the Harmon curve to, or do we represent, you know, let's say, uh, deviations um, from the Harmon curve or one of the, or a diffuse field target? Um, or do we do that and then also, you know, say, okay, here's, but here's, you know, how it deviates based on my preference. Right. Um, and then identifying, okay, I've always typically thought that my preference was somewhere in between, you know, a diffuse field and Harman target, um, as far as just the overall, like, you know, counterclockwise or clockwise leaning. Um, and so, um, the, I guess that's why I'm somewhat concerned about the notion of, as soon as I start putting in my preference curve or some something like that, it starts it starts to uh, devalue the notion of typical flat, right? Because I think people have in their head that if something is is flat, like the way that it might be represented on a compensated uh, graph, that this should sound neutral. But in reality, we know like it all depends on what the compensation is, um, and so really, it's I think it's more of a methodological. Uh, question of you know what's most prudent to do for representing that that flat line given that sort of expectation that people might have of flat being neutral um, maybe from the, the speaker world or something like that well I think you know flat flats basically you're showing this is the deviation between this thing and and what we think you know and what's our target so I think mm -hmm. it's natural to think of that as being accurate you know a flat line is accurate yeah. but you know what's accurate that's that's a different question <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're all trying to figure out um i mean and i think there's there's multiple answers mm -hmm. because not everyone wants the same thing from music it's like compare compare teal's program and all this teal is still working like he's still doing research on his headphone paradigm because his whole thing is about a very specific goal he wants to be able to eliminate everything between a sound in a space and your ears mm -hmm. and to me that's a pretty good a pretty good standard of accurate 
like I think that's probably the most accurate I've heard as a concept is what would it sound like if I was there? Right. But that's not what everyone likes. Do you think there's a difference yeah, between I'd... that and speakers in a room? Yes. Yeah, I tend to agree. Empi- yeah, well, empirically, like yeah. in theory, if you if you go with Teal's model, that's that is straight up DF. Yeah. And if you go with the Harmon research, you do not want straight up DF. You want something that's modified from it to get most preferred. And they're not mm-hmm. super far apart, but they are they are separated. Yeah, I always like wanted to kind of look into why. I need to spend more time reading the Harmon research because it's it's so interesting why uh, that target ends up leaning much warmer than I think would be than like my preferences. So I always wonder like why is it is it because of you know people having certain music preferences or because there's an expectation that you know bass is going to sound a certain way or there's this hangover from bass rumble that you might get with speakers and and you know where does well, where does I'll this you, show up <laughs> it's definitely not a hangover from speakers because several of the papers have actually had mm. headphones and speakers tested side by side both of them interesting equalized like that that was um 2013 i think the the first big one had uh, both a headphone and a speaker preferred target curve and the mm-hmm. difference between them was not as much as the difference between either of them and flat in the bass like the the speakers had i think a little bit more bass but not not much and generally speaking people wanted the speakers also to be a bit downward sloping same as with the headphones right right in room Um, of course do you think then that one of the ways to explain this difference in let's say audiophile preferred <laughs> sound and consumer preference con- preferred sound might have something more to do with um, uh, very discerning listeners who are looking for specific um, let's say might be looking for specific things less than accurate things or in, in, I guess a better question would be what do you think accounts for this difference so there, there definitely are correlations between demographics and preferences Uh, my memory of the Harmon research is for example that women prefer slightly less bass older people prefer slightly less bass and slightly more treble Mm -hmm. but they are not super large on demographics alone I don't know if there's been a study that had audiophiles as a large segment Uh, audio engineers have been involved and they tend to prefer stuff that is a bit closer to df flat although not necessarily that close Mm -hmm. but as far as why i think that i mean it depends on your on your theories about what people are looking for you know if you if you want to just go with the really you know that you can tell it's a birch because of how it is some people just like some sounds (laughs) and we can definitely say that yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, there might not be and a, we can know, say, as much of a rhyme or reason as my conspiracy theory ends up, you know. <laughs> I mean, and it, or maybe that it's it's factors that it, that people who are doing listening tests will have a hard time isolating, at least well right. enough to predict for people. It, it might be l- very small things like, you know, childhood hearing damage slash, you know, cultural influences slash, you know, you never know with the, with with all the things that intersect potentially. 
right. we can say that for big things, there are not that many super predictive things that I'm aware of. I will, I will once again caveat. It's been a while since I read factors that influence listener preference for headphone frequency response. John Olive, um, but <laughs> the um, obviously, I guess, but uh, personally, I, I do have a theory this all these all this aside that i is sort of what i tend to carry with me when i think about why do some people prefer one thing and some people prefer another mm. number one i've long suspected that there may be some deviations between how two headphones measure relatively on one set of ears one set of accurate ears and another set of real human ears um and i think that this may account for some of the variations in what people perceive but additionally i tend to think that because music has different mastering conditions there's probably an influence from the production process what 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 sean olive and floyd tool have called the circle of confusion yep. um on the results so you know if you if you have uh music that's made on speakers that are flawed it will tend to have some attempts to lean against some of those flaws. Uh, the classic example is like the BBC dip, I think. Right. Which is a upper mid-range dip found in the original BBC studio monitors and in a lot of other ones that descended from them. Right, so given, given that, um, assuming that eventually there are recording and mastering standards that uh, everything is um takes into consideration do you Would think you these... there will be well that's a good that's a good question i was, <laughs> I was having that debate <laughs> with sean olive on twitter recently <laughs> um but uh because i i tend to think you know people listen to stuff that's people aren't going to all necessarily be listening to stuff that's always optimal optimal level recorded anyways because genre preference is a thing um and and also just you know I like the Beatles or I like stuff that's, you know, old recordings, right? So uh, I, I don't think that that's a realistic way of, of saying like, you know, um, let's make sure everything has the same mastering, you know, and everything has the same, uh, let's eliminate that element from the circle of confusion. Um, it might be a nice uh, solution for anyone who's trying to devise target curves or, or trying to, you know, um, uh, develop headphones. But I, I just don't think it's realistic. <laughs> well, for what Sean, at least as I understand what Sean's saying, his goal is basically when he talks about the circle of confusion, he's talking about a mat, you know, a person making music, a musician, you know, let's just aggregate them all together, has an intention for the sound. And they hear that on whatever systems they're using to put together the music. Mm hmm. And what they hear there influences how they put the music together. But then right. if you listen to it on a different system, you don't hear what the artist intended. So the his goal is, in a sort of similar way to Teal, to sort of cut out the middlemen, cut out the things that are interfering with being able to convey art to the listener. And I, in theory, that still accommodates a lot of very different sounds. It just means that you get the different sound as intended by whoever, you know, 
whoever made it. And then if you prefer something different, then you, you know, you equalize yourself. Right. You have your own EQ. Right. Which is something that he, which, you know, he, which, which, uh, I think even Floyd Toole way back in the day, uh, have said there, there's quite robust evidence that individual listeners should have at least course adjustments that they can make to the general frequency slant of their headphones because there are differences in what people prefer. When you control for everything else, people do have some differences in what they prefer. So this is basically the same. And of course, thing. in the modern day, we can just do that. We have phones. Right. Well, so, <laughs> we should do that. <laughs> um, but basically, this is to say that, you know, there might be a an accurate way of representing what the artist intended, but that's not necessarily what everybody's going to prefer. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, jump away from this a little bit um, and just ask you, um, you know, apart from a good frequency response and a good, let's say, overall tonality, like good sounding headphone for its overall tonality, um, not, let's, let's, let's not say frequency response here because I'm well aware that there's a lot more stuff embedded in there that I'm not <laughs> taking into consideration, but for a just overall tonality, apart from that, what are some other elements of, of headphones that you personally find engaging? So, or what, what would be like, you know, if I'm going to, I asked Corinne this question last week, but, um, if you could list like a priority of, you know, technical stuff, is it dynamics? Is it a spacious presentation is it you know um, what what else do you think makes a headphone engaging apart from just a good overall balance well in terms of the subjective experience of listening i mean i think that I, the most important thing i, I think i said this the, the last time i was on as well is and, and still remains just the ergonomics <laughs> Really, a, a headphone that feels weird will probably, for me, subconsciously affect how it sounds more than any, <laughs> any aspect of technicalities. As, um, assuming it's more normal in terms of weight and comfort yeah. and all that stuff. I, here's the thing, though. I People slice up what they hear. Well, people. A, a lot of people in the audiophile community slice up what they hear into dynamics, detail. And for a long time, I tried to do that as well. But I realized, you know, I listened to this one day. I think, oh, man, I hear a whole bunch of stuff I never heard before. Man, this is much more detailed. I, I put back on the, the old shitty headphones. Hey, I can hear it again. What? Did the detail transfer over? I, I'm not... I, I don't really, at this point, believe that much in trying to slice and dice the subjective. I think that a headphone, a speaker is a complete subjective experience to me. Mm -hmm. You know, every aspect of its sound comes together to, to be the influence that it has on whatever I'm listening to through it. And that's that's what I evaluate as good or bad. For, for slicing and dicing, I go into the technical world of things because there I can be like, all right, you know, this, this headphone... You know, I can say, you know, the bass on this headphone doesn't sound good. That, that's, that's like something I would definitely slice and dice... And there's a lot of reasons it could be. It could be because it rolls off. It could be because it clips. It could be because, you know, there's meaningfully high distortion. It could be, you know, a whole bunch of different things. It could be because the frequency response is not, in fact, great. But I don't really, for myself, find value in trying to create a bunch of subjective categories 
for small variations in how things are for specific elements of how things perform well or poorly mm -hmm. which i which is i think partially why i count myself among the sort of more objective side of the hobby right so um, you know what someone you know I'm, I'm sure that i hear what someone else would call a detailed presentation or what have you but i mm -hmm. I'm, I'm uncertain of whether it can be accurately called that and also i'm not sure it enhances my ability to enjoy it to try to give it that label much so imprinting. That's right. Oh, I was just going to say, what about something that's very different, like, for example, a Sennheiser HD800 or like a Hi-Fi Man Aria or some of those headphones that have crazy, let's say, spacious presentation, comparing you know, to like the HD6XX or something like that? Well, spaciousness is an interesting one. Mm -hmm. Spaciousness in the sense of feeling big, I will say is definitely something that has a lot of frequency response contrib uh, contributions like right. just the sense of size and that's something you know we can we can see that in how we equalize recordings we can see that in obviously you know if we wanted real spaciousness we'd convolve it with a room impulse response from an opera hall or something um but beyond just i, th I think that there are factors beyond just you know, it, it has to have somewhat dipped upper mids to have, you know, that sort of sense that you're in a large yeah. room so there's not the immediate reflections. You know, I don't yeah. think it's so simple as that to make something sound spacious. For for the HD eight hundred in particular, I have some theories about how the acoustics of the of the pad space work, although they are entirely ad hoc and unsupported. Um and I think that there's a contribution of what I would consider accuracy on a perception of spatiality. So, so I think that that, but here's the thing, you know, that's still just part of the picture. These are all basically windows through which we're perceiving the sound. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I, I'm quite confident in the ability of like spectroscopy or whatever Sure. to piece together how a window is filtering out the colors of the light. But when I look through a window, I'm more interested in how I see through it. And then if I want to know, you know, this is cutting this this bit of yellow by this much, or this is, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this has this much warping of the, of the image due to the curvature of the glass or whatever, that one I would probably prefer to go just to the numbers. And, and they're trying to see how the actual data corresponds and how some of the theoretical stuff corresponds to my subjective stuff has been interesting. But I haven't found it that useful to try to have a lot of subjective categories beyond, you know, sounds good here, sounds bad with this. This is going wrong. It's more about where things go right and wrong than it is about uh, a concept of dynamics or detail or what have you. Because it's... A, it's a lot more consistent in my experience to say this is a problem or this is good and then look for how what correlates with that than it is to say you know this is good because of x and then look at what x correlates with mm -hmm. but as far as like what your personal enjoyment consists in um of of, of headphones oh. like when you're you know say you listen to a hi-fi man says vara right I have not when you when you listen vara, i'll say what's that sorry I have not heard this as far. Oh, okay, but pick a you know crazy high end flagship headphone, for example. Uh, is what is it about those those headphones that you enjoy 
um, one or for example, like headphones that do certain things really well. Again, let's let's go back to the HD eight hundred, right? Um, Absolutely. Do you look at or do you when you when you put the or let's say HD eight hundred S because it's a little bit less bad. <laughs> Um, or yeah, SDR, I like S- the HD an SDR modded, maybe. Yeah, I like the stock HD. You like the the six K peak? That's <laughs> yeah, fine. Yeah, people are um, cowards. <laughs> um, but yeah, so for example, with that headphone, like it's really well known for its soundstage, right? Or what we call soundstage and spaciousness and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Is that a quality that you that you actually find enjoyable when you're listening to a headphone? In such a way where if it, if it didn't have that, it wouldn't be as good. I think it depends on the music. Mm-hmm. There's some music for which a sense of spaciousness is a real ad, but there's some music for which it isn't. Um, Interesting. Um, so you because, mean like you know, if you have... close mic and stuff like that? Well, or, you know, there, there's admittedly my my taste in music i will not defend under any circumstances <laughs> but you know if you have a recording that comes from some little pub in ireland and it sounds like they're in a concert right. hall well that's fucked that's yeah, okay. that's not how yeah. that recording was supposed to sound you're I supposed you. to be five feet away from that guy with his beer spilling on you right right <laughs> in which case you know hd6xx <laughs> or hd650 <laughs> yeah it's good and i'll also tight. note i think that uh there's maybe less commonality than people tend to think in how people perceive spaciousness in headphones. I'm not saying it's zero. I think that there are things that really consistently influence it. But I'd actually really like to see more looking into what unprimed people coming in relatively, you know, sight mm-hmm. unseen about what people think about how this headphone sounds and just using a standardized set of music would perceive the spaciousness of different headphones because i think that thus far that's something that hasn't been controlled particularly that that sense of space as opposed to the accuracy with which people localize things or how much people get it outside of their head because those two we have pretty well down but there's a sort of sense of acoustic size which is not quite as well pinned down and i think is an area that absolutely should be something that we should look to get more consistent subjective feedback from people on because because that will vary quite a lot because you know there are definitely some recordings that sound a lot bigger than others yeah um but i mean also just you'll have people if you put an hd 800 on them for example who don't notice the fact that it's a large stage right to the degree well, you say, you say don't notice but is it is it don't notice or is it that to them it isn't right that's what i mean it, yeah exactly to them it yeah. isn't. so um you know how like if you go to the eye doctor and they'll they'll or, or the uh, the optometrist and they'll you know when they're checking for your vision or testing your vision they'll you know flip different um, uh, elements to to make it and then you they say okay this this, this, or, this. or this yeah yes um, imagining you could do something like that with head with headphones um, you know do you think there is something that every individual would ultimately end up at. Like in, individual for themselves, like not you know universally, but individually for them. Do you think there's eventually something that they would be able to identify? Uh, maybe this kind of goes back to us being more visually oriented than auditory oriented. <laughs> um, but well, yeah, what, what's your what's your take on that? When when all else is held constant, when it's just about frequency response, 
pretty much everyone wants some degree of boost around ear resonance. It's quite common to want some boost in the sub bass, but it's not omnipresent. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, people want something that is generally sort of like the diffuse field HRTF. And right. and the, the tolerance bars around that are maybe plus or minus three decibels, which is quite substantial, but not not nearly as substantial as the variation between headphones, for example. I, I would suspect that if someone had a headphone that perfectly matched Harman, they would probably on the basis of sound alone, probably like that more than most other headphones. Um, not necessarily all other headphones. And as said, I think that the dimension of music, although I know that Sean Olive actually has a paper that specifically does not entirely agree with my take here, but I think that the dimension of influences in music, so different music preferences could influence what you want, probably also counts. But... I mean, at the end of the day, the right solution is really just to to get headphones that generally sound... Well, there's there's two ways. You could either have headphones that generally sound pretty good to most people and let end users sort themselves mm -hmm. out, mm -hmm. you know, with an EQ. Or you can try equalize, you know, making your headphone or playback system smarter so that it tries to do more of the work. Something like how Smith does it, where you're actually measuring at the user's eardrum to compensate for... Well, in the case of Smith, they're they're just correcting a headphone to match a room with your head in it, right? With a set of speakers, and that that approach I think is one that, as headphones get smarter, is going to get more popular. Mm -hmm. And that as since you know these days a computer is essentially free, so right. <laughs> a lot is possible that isn't being done. Yeah. And I think that that could, I think personalization is a phrase that you hear a bit or individual customization in some of the papers about preference. I think that that's going to be to some degree, the next frontier from having a general consensus on what most people like, mm -hmm. but right. how different that will end up being for each individual person. I wouldn't expect it to be hugely different. Assuming that people, assuming that there's no weird variance in terms of like hearing ability, right? Like, uh, I'm just thinking like, like, you know, the eyeglass analogy falls apart a little bit because you have people who have very severe, yeah, like they need quite a bit of, of different uh, um, adjustment there um, for their for their spectacles, right? So um, the odd assuming thing with, that everybody with has hearing, general hearing, yeah. Well, the odd thing with hearing is that people, at least if we trust audiograms, and I have some, I have some quibbles with how audiograms are done, but... If we trust audiograms, there's actually a lot of variation in hearing, even between our two ears in a lot of cases, for just people who are perceived to have undamaged or mostly undamaged hearing. Mm -hmm. But generally, we don't perceive that. Our brain kind of constantly updates what we expect to hear. Right. And I think that that... And I mean, you know, to some degree, it's also true of eyeglasses, you know, in the sense that... If you, if I think anyone who wears glasses, if you were a kid and you didn't, you know, didn't know you needed glasses, then one day they're like, "Hey, you really can't see anything, can you?" And you're like, "Nope, everything's a blur." And then you get your eye, you know, you get your glasses, like, "Wow, trees have leaves. Mm -hmm. People have eyes." <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. If, but the thing is with vision. 
I'm not sure because with sound, so there's so much about filtering through what what our brain expects to hear. Like, our our entire sound processing mental stack, at least as I understand it, changes things quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure if that sort of greater accuracy in the sense of getting closer to what it would be like if your ear was undamaged will actually result in it sounding better outside of maybe of the very extreme cases of hearing damage right people have right. tried that yeah. with headphones before they've, they've tried headphones that give people audiograms but they don't tend to seem to be liked <laughs> right uh, the probably... the neurophone is an example. I was oh, just going to say the neurophone is the <laughs> is the. Uh... I mean, do you think there's there's promise there? Do you think that's? I mean, you're, this goes back to what you're talking about with like what we're not doing. I mean, and some of them are like the neurophone. Technically, they're like technically we're in the same industry, so technically it would be uncivil of me to say what <laughs> I actually think about the neurophone. I haven't heard it, so I can't comment. <laughs> yeah. Uh... I'm not compelled by their ideas. <laughs> okay. But do you think in theory there's a the personalization aspect of it could be, you know, um introduced in a way that would be more effective? I think personalization would you would want to start from a different direction. Right. Uh right. the neurophone starts with people perceiving equivalent loudness with tones or with you know band filtered noise whatever. This 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 we know doesn't work. We've known that this doesn't work since the 80s mm -hmm. the an approach that starts with a measurement at your ear that i think could do interesting things right i'm not i think it would be difficult but i think that i think that there exists potential to improve there and that's the area where i would be most interested and it's actually what i assume the neurophone is doing at first with the strange probe things they have <laughs> right the, the strange strange invasive probes <laughs> yeah but see like like I think, so the way I think myself and probably a lot of other audiophiles will approach this kind of thing is kind of like more like a gimmick. And I feel like there's a bit of resistance to the notion of even personalization in theory um, because it's somehow introducing DSP or, you know, um, it's altering a naturally occurring phenomenon of pistonic motion or something like that. Now, I don't know where well, that... the heck, you want to... You want to forget DSP. Think back to the days of graphic equalizers. There were yeah. a lot of people who didn't like those, even though everyone's room has modes. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I'm very much on the EQ is fine side of things. But but I, I still think there's a hesitancy and resistance to, uh, within the, let's say, enthusiast communities, um, where people aren't wanting to do this stuff because they they think it somehow is a, a barrier yeah like it's like a exactly like they're not listening to disregarding like what the engineer intended because like here's a, that's another question it's like you know are we wanting to listen to what the, the artist intended or are we wanting to listen to what the engineer intended when they're developing the headphones and i think that's that's just a yeah <laughs> so it, people who love headphones might say engineers but i tend to prefer you know listening to music um I but prefer I, I still to listen to what i want to hear yeah exactly but 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 As see the think. thing the thing is like all of these um I, yeah there's all these audiophiles who would spend 
thousands and thousands of dollars to you know try and get their equipment up and running and then somebody comes along and says hey you can get it to sound way better if you just like do this little tweak here with some software i think it's that idea that is kind of doesn't sit right <laughs> for some reason with with the core audiences there but uh, i i do tend to agree like that that kind of stuff it should happen more the just dsp in general um, and even personalized dsp but um, yeah and i mean it doesn't I, even need to be necessarily dsp you can do analog domain adjustments to these right exactly things. i mean yeah. people have people yeah. uh, um there's a Unfortunately, his headphone measurements are not very good, but uh, there, there's a, a blogger in the Netherlands who made an amplifier with an analog signal processing module in it, which was designed to correct headphones. And I thought that was a very cute solution. <laughs> do people feel better about it because it's analog? They seem to. <laughs> I don't know. I See, like, I've never gotten into that stuff because I just think it's like, if you can improve something by just doing a bit of EQ, why wouldn't you? But... Um... I think it just comes down. It's it's more to do with that sort of like fundamental like, um, yeah, disconnect I guess, um, and acoustics being a different thinking of acoustics as a, as somehow separate from you know the software side of things, um, but um, uh, I wanted to get your take on what, um, I mean, given that you I mean you, you're let's say a self uh, ascribed uh, objectivist to a certain degree um what do you think of you know the like let's say audio files in general like if reading head fi threads or you know people talking about you know, different different pairings and tube amplifiers and all this stuff like or even just talking about experience categories like detail retrieval sound state dynamics um i mean given your like experience with all this kind of stuff i mean do you think that some of the commonalities or some of the terms that have emerged um, in audiophile communities, like even something like transients or speed or any of that kind of stuff, does any of this have merit or are we just confusing ourselves? Are we, you know, running in circles talking about things that are ultimately confusing? <laughs> well, so two things. One, I think definitely there's some things that are an attempt to just, you know to develop a vocabulary to describe something that people are hearing. Mm -hmm. That and I mean obviously everything is an attempt to describe things that people are hearing, but things that people are hearing which exist acoustically as opposed to just psychologically. Um, but he, here's the kicker: if if you want to pin down that what you're hearing is an aspect of the equipment is something that is altered by whatever you physically own because of how it is in reality as opposed to something that comes from within your own personal you know emotional psychological interaction with that equipment then you have a need to do things like blind testing because that's where you see those sorts of differences starkly because there isn't all the other stuff Right. And, and in some cases, that sort of thing is done. There, there are there are ex absolutely cases. Uh, kind of a classic example of this: people people found that early transistor amplifiers sounded grainy or harsh, and uh, you know we did blind testing. There was definitely a consistently identifiable phenomenon, even though distortion was apparently low, and that's how people realized crossover distortion was a problem. Right. Uh, which is distortion at the zero crossing point of the sine wave when it goes from positive to negative or vice versa. It's it's very high order harmonics, so people can hear it quite a bit better. 
but the distortion analyzers at the time just saw it as distortion and audibly it was there though and once people said hey we hear this this sounds bad we did confirm that it was this that they were hearing that sounded bad or you know good whatever it is we sat down and we said okay let's find out what it is and I think that there's there's things in, in the audiophile community that would be an interesting jumping off point to figure out what it is that people are hearing. I'm interested in seeing what people are hearing when they're describing dynamics, because there do seem to be commonalities in what people describe as dynamic headphones. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in seeing what unifies spacious headphones. Right. But, um, of course, the, the the one last thing is, you know, a lot of people, I think on both the subjective and the objective side, tend to probably unduly write off things that are not aspects of the acoustic output of equipment. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you have two very measurably transparent solid-state amplifiers where you know if you play a sine wave through these things, put people side by side, let them switch back and forth, they won't be able to tell which one's which. You play music through them, let them switch back and forth, they can't tell which one's which. People do still perceive differences between these things. That's obvious. Because people are talking about hearing these differences. And I don't think right. people are just engaging in some sort of vast masquerade. And I actually think that as designers, there's quite a lot of merit into looking into what aspects that aren't about the signal influence how much people like things. Mm -hmm. Like there's a good example of this with headphones. I think headphones that are heavier tend to be perceived to sound better. <laughs> not not past a certain point, but very <laughs> light headphones are associated with cheapness. Yeah. Same thing with amplifiers. Very light amplifiers are often associated with being cheap or chintzy. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But, and, you know, is this a psychoacoustic effect? In my opinion, yeah. You know, I don't think there's anything about having a, a giant, heavy toroidal transformer in your amplifier <laughs> that necessarily makes it sound better. But if the perception of it as a higher quality piece of equipment makes it sound better to people, that's good. It's good if people right. hear it as sounding better. I think there's probably a lot, of, fun. a lot of people who resist that idea because they don't want to make it seem like it's their mind that's making this sound better and they want it to actually be the thing that they've spent however much money on. <laughs> to be well, it is the thing you uh... spent however much money well, it, on. It, it is, but it's the it's a relationship between that and, and you know other mental processes and not necessarily your uh, um, you know, immediate auditory discernibility. Um, so you well, might just be paying more attention. Of course, that's sort of true of everything, right? though. It, yeah, I suppose Oh, you so. might be paying more attention, or you might have a positive association. <laughs> I mean, it's right. I, I, really, like, at the end of the day, it's not like we have a live feed of this music. This stuff's going through mm -hmm. a mechanical bandpass filter in our middle ear. Our brain has to extract all the HRTF stuff from it to figure out which direction it's coming from so it doesn't sound like shrill garbage. Then it goes through whatever the heck our brain does to figure out, like, localization and timbre and all that stuff you are getting a very your brain is making a work of art from what's coming into your ears right and i don't think it's invalid to have that work of art made better because of the fact that you personally like the fact that you know this amplifier is a, a 12 pound slab of carved aluminum that was <laughs> you know painstakingly artisanally machined in connecticut yeah yeah um there's one behind me here 
<laughs> Looking exactly. At um, and so what does that mean for cases where there may actually be auditory differences? Well, that's where we, I mean, that's, that's where we have to take that away. Like that, that's why we do blinding is because right, right. the things that we hear because they are in the signal will still hear yeah. when we hide everything else. Right. And that's, that's really interesting as a designer. That's probably the most important stuff because that's the stuff mm -hmm. that I spend the most of my time dealing with. But the things that people hear because of all the other stuff matter too. Mm -hmm. If if a headphone is uncomfortable, it probably will not sound as good to people because they'll develop a negative association with it. Mm -hmm. If a headphone is ugly, it might not sound as good. Or it might sound better because people are like, holy shit, if it looks like that, they must have put <laughs> all the work into the speakers. Right. Do you think that without doing blind testing that it's possible to um, identify differences that may actually be there in fact um and not just sorry differences apart from all those other different factors right um do you think that's so, possible to do without uh, or with just cited comparisons do i think it's possible to identify stuff that so, so well, it's example... possible to Id... oh yes good oh I was, I was just gonna say for example if you know if you're comparing uh like the spl fonitor x in the background behind me or, mm -hmm. uh, or against the IFI micro black label, which is a much smaller, you know, less impressive looking thing and also costs far less. And you're comparing them yep. back and forth. Um, do you think it's possible to identify those differences, what the auditory differences are, if there are any, in in fact, um, is, do you think it's possible to do this in cited tests? Um, or does this kind of thing, definitive uh, difference, uh, to, to be able to say, uh, conclusively that there's a difference does that require a, a, a blind test well you can definitely you know a difference that will be audible in a blind test is is quite possibly not necessarily there's some stuff that's easier to hear in a blind test but is quite possibly audible sighted so you may mm -hmm. still you know like it's not like you can only hear these things with the blindfold right. on but until we blind ourselves, we don't know what sighted variables are influencing what we hear. Right, that's the that's trouble. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, because until we remove them, we can't tell what their contribution was. That's sort of you know tautological, right? Like, right. You can't say what portion of the hole they are until you see what the hole is when you remove them. <laughs> <laughs> right, and these will presumably also vary from individual to individual. So some might be much more strongly influenced by them than others. Uh, well, I, admittedly, I don't know. That's that's more in the domain of psychology than where yeah, I am. Yeah, totally. I know that that's there was a Danish <laughs> firm that was working on uh, basically trying to quantify the qualia, as it were. Yeah. They had uh, a really complicated questionnaire that they gave people about how different aspects of things sounded. Mm -hmm. I think Tile did a, a write-up on them after the AES meeting in Alborg, I think. Was that the, the, the Cables article? Or was no, 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 okay. no, no. No, no, it's, uh, it was a firm that presented, I think. They had, they had mm. this vocabulary of sound thing that they were working on. Right. The Cables thing was... Uh... Tile did Cables a few times, didn't he? Yeah. 
But I think the conclusion was that there may actually be a difference, even though it's it's in, his conclusion wasn't that there isn't any difference. It was that the difference is insignificant enough that it doesn't merit spending the kind of money that people do <laughs> on cables, which was a fairly safe conclusion, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, that's the center ground, I guess. Yeah, exactly. or at least it was at the time. I think yeah, the, I uh, think people are moving away from cables over time. Yeah, I've never been much of a much of a cable guy uh except in cases where something's broken like i've definitely oh, had obviously. usb cables that have been the problem in my chain because there's something wrong with the cable <laughs> um but you know uh, from from the silver cable to the copper cable i haven't uh, um it, it's not something that i've personal it's not something that i would be able to identify beyond those other cited biases that might show up but but i think well, that's, here's the question that's though does it sound better to you like when you're cited does it sound better because then it no still because might be worthwhile <laughs> right but oh exactly right and, and that doesn't necessarily take away from their value right the fact that there might not be any physical uh or let's say um non-cited differences but uh you know apart from apart from that like i think one of the issues for my ability to appreciate cables even though i do like the way that nice cables look and feel and they're comfortable and whatever uh the issue i think is is like it's like the counter bias right where you're constantly trying to um you know hedge against those those cited variables creeping in to your evaluation um, which means that sometimes you might ignore the fact that the, you know it looks better or the fact that it looks better makes it sound better to you because you or makes you it makes it it makes you appreciate it more right um i mean it's fair to say it makes it sound better how it sounds yeah, is yeah. an internal experience of yours exactly now, right. it's funny because what you've just hit on there is something that i worry about a lot for the objective side of things like i understand mm -hmm. a lot of guys are very worried about what they perceive as the misinformation of new people and i i also share that concern i think that's probably the the animating concern for a lot of people who are militant on our side of the street but <laughs> there is some element of attempting to ghost bust santa that seems to come around sometimes right you know are we actually making people happier when we say this thing that sounds better to you is actually contributing nothing to the sound because you know in, maybe in one counterfactual it's like well they would have been happier if they'd never thought that that would make them happier but what if it's just making them happier than they would have been in a world where they just knew that their chain contributed nothing to the sound like right. are we sure that this is actually making people's experience of music more joyful <laughs> well probably not <laughs> but it yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that it's not valuable right um, to try and cut through what the um, what the all the rest of that stuff, let's say, little psychoacoustics and whatnot, might be contributing. I mean, aren't we here to have fun? I, yeah, totally. But but I think I think for I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about before about like certain audio files, and, and probably myself included, wanting to wanting to uh, wanting the, the the stuff to mean more for the auditory experience that they're having. And as soon as we talk about psychoacoustics being the being the sole factor right um then it, it might detract from um you know the the overall experience again it's i think it's where that hesitancy comes from for audiophiles the, the same way you know you, you you want everything to be um acoustically relevant let's say <laughs> um to to the experience you end up having and when you have these psychoacoustic things that exist in cited evaluations that are not necessarily acoustically relevant playing a very large role 
you know, I think that could that could uh, rub people the wrong way. <laughs> I think it um, does rub people quite a bit yeah. the wrong way. I've I've yeah. heard a lot of people, and I'm, yeah, I've, to be fair, I've heard some people mischaracterize that as people mishearing things. It isn't mishearing; it's just hearing. But I can right. see why people got a bit ornery about it because there were yeah, definitely like you're some wrong, people on our you know, side who were, yeah, yeah. That 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 was not a good that that's not a good line that some people have taken. Mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I don't endorse that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. Like, I think there is probably. I mean, it's like, it's like what everything. There's probably a, a nuanced middle ground or something like that where, um, if you are discerning enough, right? I think that's what it comes down to is. The, the the criticism of the cited evaluations that include all these other things um it's to say something like you're you're not just dis being discerning enough um the flip side of it though i think is that the people on the subject in the subjectivist camp might be saying to the to the objectivists who are saying this is that you're actually not discerning enough because you're not noticing all these other things that i am which may or may not exist right um, so I, it's I, I that, feel like that is sort of the original contention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, so I, I guess it 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 causes the the ask the question of like, do you think there's stuff? I mean, I've asked this to oratory, but do you think there's stuff out there that's worth talking about uh, of acoustic relevance? Again, let's say not the psychoacoustic stuff um, that may contribute, but do you think there's stuff out there that we aren't capturing or analyzing properly apart from frequency response? Absolutely, yeah. But 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 in what in what devices is the question? You know, in amplifiers, yeah. probably not really. You know, I think I think right. that if you if you have a comprehensive set of measurements, which isn't necessarily what most people do, but if you have a comprehensive set of measurements, you can see how a headphone amplifier or digital to analog converter behaves entirely to see how any of the acoustic mm -hmm. output that results from it is going to be. Right for headphones. Right now, I don't know of anyone who is doing, and to some degree, I don't even know of a possibility to do the test that you really need to do, which is, you know, in situ, you need to actually know how it's behaving on the person's head in reality, because everything else doesn't matter other than that. That That is what actually influences what right. they hear. Right. And yeah. frequency response in that case matters. Linearity in that case matters. Isolation in that case matters. How much sound from the room leaks in and out. Maybe even interval crosstalk matters. The sound coming from one capsule to the other. Right. I'm less sold on that one, but, you know, could be. <laughs> yeah. But so, like, presumably all of the physical properties are um, discernible, right? There's no magic, you know, there's no... Um, yeah ghost in the machine so, so to speak um for this stuff mm. um that we aren't able to you know identify to some degree um but I, I, the flip side of this for headphones again and the audiophile community and you know, people like metal and metal and max and i kind of generally agreeing on certain things having you know dynamics versus not having dynamics and that kind of stuff i mean that i think merits its own kind of uh investigation where you know if there's enough agreement on these things there's probably a there there <laughs> absolutely i mean that's so. I, that's here's the funny thing and and i think that the tone from our side hasn't always been the best but mm. really when people are saying let's let's see a result in a blind test they're saying 
let's look for an effect so we can go looking for a cause. It sh it shouldn't, you know, it's been sort of turned by some people into a cudgel to say shut up. But really what <laughs> it is is let's start the process of of inquiry on this. Right. Because if, if it doesn't show up in a blind test, we know it's something that's cited. And that doesn't mean we have to stop looking. There are other methodologies to look at, you know, something that is only visible in a cited test, which includes trying to pin down what factors that aren't audible are changing how it sounds. Admittedly, they're not really so much, you know, my, my world, but that's absolutely something that someone who is, you know, more psychologically oriented and or, you know, visual design or aesthetics or something would I'm sure be interested in. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's not really something that's trying to shut down, or at least it shouldn't. It is often used that way, but it shouldn't yeah. be something that tries to shut down. It's saying, let's look and see. Right, because the more scientific approach is to include these, let's say, phenomena and then develop a hypothesis around that. To, to well, yeah, and, and, to, and to do that, you first you need to see where they are. And that, that's yeah. why people go to the blind testing, because that's the first sort. That's saying, mm -hmm. is this an acoustically audible effect? Is this something that's in the sound that it with just the sound people hear? Or is right. this an effect which is coming from somewhere else? Right. Because those two things you have to look in different places for. Mm -hmm. I, um, last question for you here, because we've been going on for <laughs> two hours now. Yeah. Uh, and I still need to piece all this stuff together, which is going to be fun. But absolutely, um, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's this is we'll we'll have to do this again where it it doesn't screw up, and I'm I'm going to yell at my internet service provider for the better part of a day to try and figure this stuff out. But um, that's very fair. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. Uh, my my question was going to be, um, do you think it's possible that there are um, really, uh, let's say, minor uh, or mostly insignificant differences that, that exist um, that might not be discernible on their own, but would potentially, like, so I, discernible isn't, like, identifiable. You'd be like, this part of this, you know, music that I'm listening to sounds different in this way. It might not be discernible in that way, but its, it's overall effect, um, so let's say, the the it's the parts to the whole analogy right the overall effect is that ultimately uh you know that it results in a better sounding system or a better sounding configuration so you might not say i can find this particular thing here um or this is a little bit harsher here um, but the overall uh sound quality is is better well, exactly Sorry if that's a I mean, actually phrasing it <laughs> well, but i think you know what i mean scrolling right? way back to Scrolling way back to talking about dynamics and detail and, and stuff, sure. that's actually why I'm sort of holistic in how I prefer mm. to look at subjective stuff. Because there's a lot of stuff that's audible, but that may not be differentiable to our brains. Right. There's stuff that you can hear, and it maybe just sets your teeth on edge just a little bit. It, it's not necessarily enough that you can articulate it or even consciously notice it, but it changes how you feel. Right, and that you... that includes things that are very much just within the audible domain, but are just relatively small, but still matter. Do you, do you think this is an obstacle for blind testing? I think this is the purpose purpose of blind testing. Right, but so, because... so so potentially it's small enough where in a controlled blind test you wouldn't necessarily be able to pick it up, but over a longer period of time you might be able to get a better sense of it because you're more adjusted to being able to discern that thing it's but it's so insignificant at the same time that you know 
in the, in the blind test, you don't happen to notice it. Okay, so this is an interesting thing. I, I've heard this this concept before, and if, if you don't mind me characterizing, I don't know if sure. this is your position, but I've heard it. Some people seem to think that blind tests are less sensitive to small differences than sighted tests. Mm -hmm. That is not congruent with my understanding of the lit. Admittedly, you know, we don't have a completely comprehensive picture, but for things like audibility thresholds for things we know are audible, a lot of the, the, the procedures, particularly things like ABX, were specifically designed to be as revealing as possible. Like, that's why you have... Like, the a, the, a fast-switching ABX test is capable of allowing people to... At least has been shown to be capable of allowing people to discern differences between components that people often don't subjectively report simply listening to those two components. Well, in terms of like tests. fair, yes, because yeah. because then they're just focused on everything else. But when mm -hmm. it just comes down to this one has you know a tiny bit of crossover distortion, not enough that when you're looking at it physically, you're like, oh, I bet that thing has 0.01% zero crossing distortion, but enough that it just slightly matters when you just switch between two bits of music. You know, well, at the two bits, you know, one from it, one from the other thing, and then say, which one of these matches X? That's a really sensitive test in a lot of cases. You would be shocked at how easy it is, at least I'm, I have been shocked at how easy it is, to find really comparatively quite small differences that way. And, and I feel it every time I have to do a blind A-B test, because it's so much less sensitive, because you mm -hmm. don't have a reference. So test design matters a lot for how sensitive things are, particularly for subjective tests. Right. But I think that the premise that a blind one is necessarily less sensitive, in many cases, I think that it's more sensitive in the same way that, you know, you close your eyes when you're, you're sniffing the fine wine. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, like you, you might more sensitive in, in the literal sense of sense, <laughs> like more. Yeah. 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 Um, you're more likely to pick it up. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the reason why I've been a little concerned about the notion of blind testing as far as a good way of, or as, as far as, um, not that I don't, I actually want to be able to do blind testing um, and do it in a, in a way that is, uh, yeah, like let's say appropriate and, and not, you know, have flaws in it, <laughs> in the methodology. But um, it, one of the concerns that I have is if you are doing a sighted test, for example, there are potentially uh, 10 different things that you could identify in, in, you know, that are different. And over time, you're able to identify those different things. So I'll give an, an example. Um, if, if, you, if you compare like an ESS-based DAC to a you know, Burr-Brown DAC or AKM DAC or something, people talk about you know, uh, ESS DACs have this glare to them that isn't there for the other DACs and I've certainly experienced this phenomenon and so in that case in in the blind test it's actually I, it's a fairly easy to distinguish um, uh, it's fairly easy to, to distinguish the, you know one from the other but if you're doing a sighted test over a long period of time and you're isolating individual things like uh, yeah let's let's imagine 
uh, you know, treble glare or is one of the parameters. Uh, soundstage is another, or not soundstage, but like let's say let's say depth or you know dynamics. So let's put whatever audiophile terms you want to throw in there, right? Yeah. If you're trying to find differences among multiple different dimensions, I I worry that that might be easier to do over a longer period of time in sighted tests, or like let's say a really long, <laughs> several days of blind testing, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, like, whereas in why the not short blind days test, of blind testing? Yeah, yeah. Whereas in the short, you know, or the fast uh, blind test, the concern that I have would be there's too much there's too much potential difference for any of them any and because they're all small differences there's too much potential difference for them to matter. Too many different dimensions well, that are different for individual differences to matter. So I'll note with, with speed and blind tests, the only thing that usually people from the objective side want is that switching be fast mm -hmm. because oh, yeah, yeah, auditory yeah. memory, Sorry, I mean, short auditory the, memory. Yeah, 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 for sure. But you know, if you, if you had an ABX tester and you wanted to say every day, I'm going to, you know, set it up for one session. I'm going to plug mm -hmm. in my, you know, my SPL monitor. I'm going to plug in my, uh, Wi-Fi, what was it again? Black label? Oh, micro black label. Micro black label. You know, make sure that they're the same level. Mm -hmm. Connect my DAC to both of them, get them both playing. And, you know, I'll have A is the is the Wi-Fi, B is the, is the Fonitor, and then X, you know, I'll figure out over the course of the day which I figure X sounds more like. Mm -hmm. And you did that. I don't think, and, and you know, everything was kept proper you know as you know, yeah, the sure. test generally Assuming. was not compromised but you know if yeah. you took a day if you took a week you would not hear complaints from people about right. the scientific right, validity right. of this because there isn't anything about making people go quickly in fact right. if so, anything it's one of the things that i always thought was kind of cool about automatic abx testers yeah. is that they could potentially you could do a test that went over time scale of months right so but see that that's more interesting to me because i think then you'd be because like the 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 uh, examples of blind testing that I'm thinking of are like, I'm not sure if you read Jason Stoddard's um, This Shit Happened article where he talked about, um, you know, blind listening and stuff like that. You know, imagine being able to walk into a location where there's a whole bunch of equipment there and it's you have the ability to do blind testing to, they, they didn't, this isn't what the article is about, but I'm just saying this is a setup where you could just go there potentially and, you know, blind test, right? You could do the blind mm -hmm. listening that, they, that they've got set up. And it's not ABX testing because it's not, um, I don't think they have X. X is not a variable, but it's more just being able yeah, to Yeah, blind discern. AB. Yeah. Now, I'll say blind yeah. AB is a lot harder. Yeah. Blind AB is a lot harder. And I think mm -hmm. that because people do blind AB, they get a little biased against ABX. Because right. without having a site, having reference anchors, it's, I mean, blind A-B testing is the most stressful stuff I've ever done, to be frank. <laughs> <laughs> and, and why is that? But, just, and, anyway, you mean just well, because, because you... you have to hold in your memory what you think right. the difference is between these two things. And you have to say, okay, well, you know, I hear that this is different from this. I know that. But which one's which? Right. That's so much harder than saying, all right, I got one and two, and then I've got three, which is either one or two. Yeah. Which one yeah. does it sound more like? Flip, flip. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I guess, yeah, my, my concern is more with the, let's say, casual A-B testing where it's, it's over a sh much shorter duration where you're not able to go through the dimensions that you might be able to go through in a sighted long-term evaluation. 
where in those cases the cited long-term evaluation might actually reveal things that the shorter term AB or even ABX test would uh, would miss. Well, I mean, that's certainly possible. The the main, like, I don't even think you'd hear a contention on that one mm -hmm. for things for which, diff like, the contention you'd hear is that a lot of people don't believe that there will be a difference audibly between, like, have right. an active disbelief in the idea that there will be a difference between, you know, two components that measure such and such way. Right. So those people, they're saying, you know, you have to bring us evidence that these two things have something acoustically differing between their outputs. Mm -hmm. But, and so that's they, that's it's a higher standard. But I don't think you'd hear a contention from people that a long, detailed, sighted test could potentially find something that a brief, hurried, blind test couldn't. But here's here's the thing, and here's the trouble with it. You don't know where that thing came from. Identifying right. that it's an acoustically audible effect as opposed to something that's psychoacoustic requires that you remove as much of the psycho as you can. Right. I mean, I, I I don't think anybody in the, let's say, subjective camp would debate that, uh, like, would, would suggest that a long-term blind test is inferior for identifying those differences, just that it requires the long-term <laughs> component to it yep. um, to I be mean, able to potentially find the differences. Yeah. The first time that I, like, definitively heard a difference in amp outputs was with a low efficiency planar. It was actually the, the, the it was Mr. Speakers at the time, uh, the Aeon Open, and I ah. I'd been using it on the Micro Black label for a long time, and not a long time, some time, and I then switched to the balanced output of the Kyan IHA six, which does it does use a big toroidal transformer <laughs> um, <laughs> for the output. Um, and and to me i was like even though the volume was at the same level i was like holy smokes this is a big this is a noticeable difference there this it, the difference makes sense right and Absolutely. and that was you know like before i wasn't doing any blind tests or anything like that i was just incited you know comparison and like t to the point where i thought it wasn't even an it wasn't even something that would matter for blind testing because the difference was so was so significant and to this day I still am able to identify what that difference is, you know, between the micro black label and the and the Kyan H A six, but only on the balanced output that's making use of the toroidal transformer. Now I don't know why wait, wait, the other one doesn't use the toroidal transformer. So, sorry, what? Wait, the, the other one doesn't use the transformer. The so the micro black label doesn't, but the. the oh, oh, I see. So, yeah. so I, I was, I was saying it, it's not like they ran a different. A different no. power supply for the single engine because i have heard oh. some weird stuff from oh, audio actually, files but that would sure have seemed really no weird. i actually think they might <laughs> but but the but oh my gosh really I, I, they might i'm actually really not sure about that because i know that the so like actually this amp doesn't make any sense the the kai 96 is one of the least sensible amplifiers um i well at least i thought so because the the balanced output is uh it's got really low output impedance less than one ohm the ones the low gain single ended output is 10 ohm open impedance and the high gain is 110 ohm open impedance and i thought to myself huh. why would i ever use either of the single ended outputs on there but i do understand like there is a reason for it it's just it seems to be missing one very important single ended output but in any case the difference between the single ended outputs and the balanced outputs was pretty strong you couldn't i don't think you could really say that that was down to anything other than output impedance though um but then well, 10 ohms is not that high. 
it's not that high no but it would depend on the headphones that you're using as well um absolutely but in in this in my case that i was you know making this comparison between the the micro black label and the and the iha6 um it was a pretty substantial difference uh, like going just from the single-ended output on the on the um ifi to the to the balanced output on the kind ha6 and i think now like after you know years now of having it and <laughs> having both of them and being able to do this kind of comparison and stuff like that um I, th I think this is a perfectly explainable difference i think this is a difference where yeah it, it makes a lot of sense um like an objectivist could be able to make sense of this right like you could measure it and find where those differences are and there's no secret magic or anything to that and probably the biggest difference has to do with current and the headphones that were being used that's probably where that comes into play but at the time i remember thinking wow better design amplifiers that are like all of the different things we were just talking about with the sighted uh, uh evaluations <laughs> the psychoacoustics that would have all been you know at work and i would have been like oh wow yeah this is a this is a more actually they come around at the same price so cost is not uh, an issue i think it's only like a hundred dollars more for the kind of ig6 but it looks substantial it looks like this huge aluminum brick that has this you know really nice turning volume knob and like all these different elements that have nothing to do with the, the the acoustics or the, the the sound output and even when you look at like the 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 internals and you see okay it is using a huge toroidal transformer in there right like there's a lot of stuff all that stuff would have been operable as well um so i yeah i guess the the, the point is that like i i think that that while there might be a lot of this stuff going on for the audiophile who is making this you know um attribution there you know a, saying that you know this amplifier sounds better than this amplifier and in these different ways um, might be the result of all these different psychoacoustic things there's probably an explainable reality to that 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 there's probably a version of an explanation that that uh also explains very real differences that exist for that aren't psychoacoustic related uh, as well now, now I will say, just because it's measurable doesn't mean you can hear it. The the two tenets right, of objectivism right. <laughs> used to be well, not objectivism, the objective people. This is back. This is back far enough that people were still complaining right. about y'all calling us objectivists because of the fact that there was Ayn Rand and stuff. But uh, oh, back in the day when people used to just call it not subjectivism, um, the two tenets were: if you can't measure it, you can't hear it. And just because you can measure it doesn't mean you can hear it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that. So yeah. it's uh, that the second one sadly seems to have been gotten lost in the period where we've now started fantasizing over signal above noise and distortion figures that are impossible in rooms that exist. Right. Right. But uh, I digress. I, what I was gonna <laughs> say when I started out the whole comparing. Yeah. amps thing though you know let's say it's the cayenne and the i-fi or the or maybe even two of the cayenne's outputs mm -hmm. imagine you had a box that you that just had headphone jack on it let's say it's you know maybe both a prs and a four pin balanced or maybe it's four pin balanced but sometimes the the negatives are, are together if it's a single end source whatever and that box is just an abx box yeah. One, you know, one button on it always goes to one input. One button always goes to the other, and the other one goes to a random one. And just whenever you get something to review, you plug in both things to it. You can toggle back and forth between them at your leisure, and then whenever you feel like it, maybe it's once a day, maybe it's once an hour, maybe it's never during that review if you don't feel like there's anything that's worth trying to ferret out. 
you could see whether you can figure out whether X is A or B. Mm -hmm. Like, I reckon there are ways that you could work it into, because really, it doesn't need to interrupt your listening. You can just be like, if you, if you listen to the two of them, you're like, hey, wait, hold on, right there with that, I think I hear a difference. That's a moment where you could be like, well, yeah. let's, you know, let's see. Let's see if, if pushing the button, I do ping take that, a, you know, as a difference. Take because, you know, tw 20, 30 minutes out of the normal, you know, evaluation to do the... Well, well forget 20 or 30 minutes. Just uh, let's say you had it all plugged in to begin with. If you, yeah. if you had, you know, I don't know, what the, the audio by Van, Van Allenstein one, the, mm -hmm. the ABX comparator. Um, literally, you could just be listening to, you know the the cayenne and be like oh wow that's you know that's so much more authoritative on this track sure whatever it ends with up this headphone yeah. yeah and then you could just press the button flip over to the other one and be like yep nope that does not sound nearly as good and then you yeah. just hit x and then just go with your gut and you might be surprised by the result so that so that's what i've been wanting to put together at some point is something where it doesn't uh yeah where it's actually feasible to do this you know, um, on a regular basis, um, I've run into several issues. Mm -hmm. One of them is that, uh, well, one of them has to do with, uh, outputs specifically, um, outputs. And then, so just, just, you know, different cables, ter cable terminations and, and different outputs. Um, uh, and so it's like, how do you, you have, you have to have some way of making sure that you're, you're plugging the cable into it, it so that you're not having to unplug and plug anything back in. Right. For, whichever Absolutely. amplifiers you're comparing and then also the headphones that you're comparing the other obstacle that i've run into is um there's concerns about the boxes themselves introducing their own character whatever it ends up being again this is not something that i would necessarily that's not my area but yeah. but no i will say for 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 properly designed comparators of which there have not been many there haven't been many abx comparators period i think about mm -hmm. four have been made commercially yeah in theory, the input and the output should basically be just a conductive strip of PCB when, when right. it's in whatever position. So the, it, it should really be, unless you were concerned that the copper is influencing the sound, it should not be a big issue. I mean, so it, there's with, inevitably so going to be cable people over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the cable people need not apply for, for ABX tests, sure. I guess. Yeah. But yeah. I think we've already lost for, them at this point. That's <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But, you know, for and that, that applies to the DIY ones. Um, mm hmm Elliot, uh, Elliot Sound Solutions, you know, sound.wh sites or whatever. The, uh, the, the guy with like the oldest audio DIY site had an incredible ancient, mm. like rotary selector based ABX box that he made entirely passive. All of it is really just at the end of the day, electromechanical connections. I don't even think he used relays in it. God, it was hellish to construct there's a reason that i don't have one but it absolutely there should not be any audible difference between what goes in and what comes out because it really is just wire at the end right. of the day for that one and it's and that and even for the fancier ones usually it's just wire with a relay and the re, and the signal in many cases will not actually be going you know meaning you know the signal going through the relay re, all right so i don't I don't want to throw fuel on the fire here too much with speaker amps there is some slight evidence that relays can sometimes have measurable if not necessarily audible effects mm -hmm. with headphone amps and dacs i would not worry about it so that's kind of been my take on a lot of the stuff as well where 
a lot of the expectation that there would be a difference comes from a different world where maybe there is a more significant or one that a meaningful difference um whether it's to do with yeah uh like i, I think just like sources in general um it's like that um but then also i tend to think that when people do identify some difference in the source i mean that it is going to be a small it's going to be an, a, a fairly like it's not going to be as big a difference as just you know switching to a different headphone for example but because that difference is discernible right um mm -hmm. suddenly that matters a lot right and then Absolutely. that ends up being like to, to, to that person right because they're like oh my god it sounds so much more you know whatever right authoritative and have us more depth or whatever i i tend to think that the ascriptions that do get made are often far overblown um as a result of wanting to uh get excited i guess about the smallest differences that might be noticed um, so you're saying I don't need a $500 amp with my K701. Right, right. So like, so, so that kind of stuff. Exactly, right. It's like, even even in the like, highest end, like, I think as long as you can get the, the again, I, I go back to the term of just basic power. But as long as the, the there are no issues, right? Um, you know, driving whatever it is, as long as it's like, I'll give the example, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to use, you know, the 110 ohm output of the Kai 9 6 with the Focal Utopia. It's literally higher output impedance than the impedance of the headphone. Um, but well, so as long as there's no... It? Yes, I have. Um, boost the bass like crazy. <laughs> it does. Yeah, um, it's hilarious. People but, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but see, see, like, that's the kind of thing, though, like, regardless of... So, so saying, you know, uh, oh, this amplifier is required for this thing. I mean, Corinne and I were talking about this in the last podcast we did but saying that this amplifier is a requirement for this headphone i just think is probably a bit of hyperbole but that doesn't necessarily Kren's mean that really angry about that right now isn't he oh really <laughs> uh, not not about you like some, oh, okay. someone was getting on his case about oh. it but i saw there was quite a there was quite a kerfuffle about whether he yeah. was using a sufficient amplifier and that he feels oh, that no, the yeah. goalposts will always move i was involved in that yeah yeah i mean i oh. it, it, it's it's only because of the experience so like i actually haven't even i didn't even test it on on the the micro black label that was used talking about you know the uh power hungry headphones and all that kind of stuff but i didn't even test it on uh in the case of the headphone i never actually tested on the micro black label i just tested it on um you know the other amplifiers at the time so i don't actually know what uh what his testing methodology would would have resulted in but i do know that um when uh when people heard it at CanJam, uh, and people who you know they had an experience of it on, I think it was actually on the Fonitor X, um, in low gain, they were like, eh, and then they heard it on you know the Pro ICAN or one of the other really powerful amplifiers out there, and were like, oh my god, this is so much better. And when a reviewer has that kind of, um, let's say, mea culpa, I don't know if that's no, if the reviewer has that kind of about face uh, on something. I, I tend to think that it starts to matter as far as the evaluation is concerned. The, the, the flip side on that too is that like I completely agree with the issue of goalpost shif shifting. And I think, um, well, this is actually something that Max was talking about as well, where uh, 
it, it's only really an issue when there's there's something that just is not working well with the with the equipment that you have but in like 99 percent of uh, cases the micro black label is a perfectly fine source i don't think there's ever it's it can it's got tons of power there so and um, what, what was the headphone in particular that was having no sorry it was it was, the, it was the, the headphone like the head to, oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. sorry God. that's confusing head audio headphone i gotta remember to say head audio every time i say the headphone um the heights uh, electrodynamic design yes of phone. yes <laughs> exactly um so yeah, like like in my I mind, remember that. Uh, I I don't think his his re review was uh, all that out of place or anything like that. But I do think there are some cases where it starts to it starts to if if you're using it with a micro black label or like a you know Audio Quest Dragonfly or something that's like a portable source, it's not um, you know that's maybe not the best. I don't think that goalpost shifting need necessarily require the five thousand dollar system to make something sound good because like I, I get frustrated by that stuff as well you know like um like when i reviewed the diana phi uh you know i oh, was goodness. criticized for only you know using a I, I was criticized for using it on the pro i can which is 14 watts a channel you know like you can't use it on that source because it's not you know anyways that's a different different story but for, what 14 watts that that would be yes. very bad for your ears. It's, well, you wouldn't want to run it that loud, right? Like it's, it's just ridiculous, right? So, but uh, having it be sufficiently powered, right? I think way back in the day there were amplifiers that were not particularly powerful. That maybe you know the headphones like, yeah, headphones like that might have had an issue with it. But these days, most even like entry level amplifiers are fairly powerful. Um, now we're so. talking watts. I mean, like a watt is a crazy amount of power for a headphone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyways, that's that's a that's a different <laughs> different story. I don't I don't think that Crin and I actually disagree about all that much when it comes to this stuff. It it goes back to that thing when I was evaluating the micro black label and comparing it against the balanced output of the Kyan IHA six with the uh, Mister Speakers Aeon Open, and. Yeah. You know, in my mind, I wouldn't say that it requires the IHA-6, but I can certainly see why somebody was goalpost shifting on that headphone in Threads on HeadFi. Because they heard it off of that amplifier and were like, oh, yeah, this sounds better to whatever, in whatever description, I'm sure. Uh, you know, more authoritative, more depth, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then when I did that testing, I was like, yeah, I can see why somebody would prefer it off of this amplifier. But I wouldn't say that it requires it, right? So I think it's just a matter of trying to identify what we mean by requires. And then for me, the bottom line is that like all these amplifiers, like the that are, you know, powerful and they do they're great amplifiers. They're cheap. They're the IHA six is about the same price as the micro black label. The uh seven eight nine, THX seven eight nine is like yeah, it's like uh two hundred, three hundred bucks. bucks now? Yeah. So I like I don't know if the let's say goalpost shifting to those types of sources is all that difficult to achieve. Like I wouldn't really call that goalpost shifting. I would just say, like, use a different, use one of these other sources, um, and and not as well, a matter of identifying differences, but as a matter of prudence for, or as a matter of like, um, yeah, uh, not getting those complaints. I think. <laughs> Well, the main thing is that, and, and this is why it's sort of goalpost shifting, is what's 
available for what changes quite a lot with time. Like, mm. you go back to uh, let's 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 turn back the clock a full decade, twenty ten. Right. What's what's the best two hundred dollar amplifier you can get from a power standpoint? I don't even know. Maybe some sort of back then. maybe like a C, like a Cmoy with some some buffers on the outputs. Um, you, ten years ago, you could get some yeah. for two hundred bucks. I, you, I know you could get some shit audio stuff back then, um, but in, I don't know if that'd be the most in, powerful. For two hundred bucks in twenty ten. Yeah, couldn't you get like a shit audio? That's uh, before the O two, and the O two is before the Magni. Oh, was it before the Magni? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, indeed, it's not. sort of a popular perception, although I I don't I think that Jason would like that. <laughs> no, the uh, the whole reason that that uh, the O2 got made was because of the complaint at the time, which you know, circa yeah. 2011. There is nothing that you can get for 200 bucks that can be reasonably said to drive most headphones well. Ah, I may have an answer. The so I remember uh, there were. Do you remember like the Zonar Essence sound cards? Yes. So they made the box out of that, and I think I it was remember that bucks. thing. Yeah, and it could drive. It had a lot of power. I remember. I don't remember exactly how much it was, but like people were driving. You know, people had six hundred ohm headphones and they were driving it off of it. God, I remember uh, that. Goodness. Zonar Essence One. That's what it was called. Uh, but they, but it's based on the sound card, the STX, and it was Burr Browns, and uh, and people were like switching up out the op amps and stuff like that to tweak the sound. <laughs> Oh goodness! Right, they and they made a version with the Muses op amps with the JRC yes, ones. that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but anyways, so so what? Sorry, what were you saying about t turning back? The yeah, clock but how, so th that that would have cost. Did that even cost two hundred then? I yeah. thought that was more expensive. Really? Well, so that that would be about the best you could get. Nothing I think has on the output something like a TPA sixty one twenty eight two. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong, but I, I think that's what I usually remember those sorts of things running. Mm. Oh, wait, no, actually, never mind. The SR. Oh, no, the, the new, the Muses edition uses the LME 49600. I don't know what the old version used. Um, anyway, we're talking about something here that probably is not going to be doing more than 300 milliamps output, that probably isn't running for more than 15 volt rails, and might not even be. It might be yeah. less. You compare that to like. Magni Heresy. You compare that to oh God, heaven forfend you compare that to like the the topping A90 or the, you know, the whatever the higher than the 789 is, the, the higher end THX thing. Mm -hmm. Nowadays you can get some amplifiers you're getting, you know, output voltage swing that exceeds 20 volts. You're getting like, yeah, more than 500 milliamps of output current. Sometimes you're getting more than an amp. <laughs> you're getting enough to make... Yeah. I mean, it's... You're getting enough to make pretty much any headphone play to not just 110 dB, but like 120 dB. Right. And that just keeps getting cheaper. But honestly, I don't know if that'll stop because... I mean, obviously, it's not like we're power limited. You know, we've been able to make a power amp that was able to do... 20 watts for 30 bucks for a while now so you could definitely make a more powerful head amps but 
my question is, you know, why? <laughs> Like for the the Magni two, the, the Magni one, the Magni one, way back when. How much power did that have? It was like right. a watt, maybe. And I think that was edgy uh, at the time. I don't know, actually. I I actually, it's funny. I all these amps that you're, I've actually owned all of them that you're talking about. Yeah, at various different times, whether the O two and the Magni and all that. Um, actually, it was the Magni two that I owned. Um, yeah, so you, you got the sexy version. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I, I, I think there's there's sort of two independent variables that work against one another in the in the headphone and amp synergy world, where amps are getting more powerful and cheaper, you know, more power at less cost, and headphones are getting more and more efficient. And eventually, yep. the existing, uh, let's say, um, traditional mindsets that might be influencing you know more power equals more better um I, th I think those will start to sort of erode when that stuff just stops mattering and in fact i think it probably has stopped mattering for a while now <laughs> um, yeah that's like that's the thing i was gonna say because you know the he6 right when yeah. uh that's the top of where it you know <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's one volt for 90 decibels or near enough that's yeah I don't even know how much it takes. I think I think it, it's one of the few headphones that I have seen clip an O2 in my sign testing, and I saw that happen. I think about one ten yeah. maybe. So, but that the O2 has half a watt less actually. So um, the HE five hundred clipped something that I owned as well. I really? Remember. Yeah. Um, I was I was gonna say it was an O2 because I had an O2 back then, and I had to upgrade. Yeah, but anyways, they that was at the cadence of like that idea of you need to buy a powerful amplifier to drive these high end headphones. These days, yeah, I mean, like that that was that the peak yeah. of insensitivity. The HE four, yeah. the HE six. Yeah, but you know they are still making stuff like the uh, like the Fio E ten K. That's still a thing, right? You can still buy. Actually, maybe it was the old is Fio. It? I think it is. Oh my um, gosh! Sure, Fio. Things like. That thing's like the grandpa of Jack amps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can still buy that right now. <laughs> wow. Uh, they may have they may have improved it since then, but um, yeah, that's that's what what uh, the HE five hundred clip. That's what I owned back then. I remember. Um, yeah, that makes sense. That thing doesn't even do line level, right? That's yeah. well, it, rather it's its maximum output is less than two volts. Yeah, and so when somebody's goalpost shifting on you, actually, I've encountered manufacturers who goalpost shift as well. And when they do that, I think one of the concerns is that you might be running it off of a phone at worst or an E10K <laughs> or yeah. something like that. And then, yeah, there's there's some merit there. I think there's a you know, reason to goalpost shift on that. I, well, I, mean, I, I think, think it's reasonable to set a standard. But I think yeah, yeah. Crin's point, as I understand it, and, and my point as well, once we have something that's sufficient for the HE6, I think that we can say it's sufficient for everything. Right, and, and we have those now at really low cost. Right, do. yeah, and we have those at like three hundred dollars now, <laughs> or a hundred dollars. So, I mean, that's that's yeah, the question. Yeah. Do you need the HE six to play beyond one hundred and ten dB? Do you need it to play one hundred and fifteen, one hundred twenty? Like, obviously not. Right. That would be insane. I, yeah. So, I liked Quinn's point about distortion though as well. I thought that was, um, I'm I'm not sure if. That was we were talking about it, but basically he was saying like power gets redefined as distortion, and uh, as other than really what we should be talking about is distortion and not 
does it have enough power um i think there's probably merit huh. in rephrasing it uh, to a certain way so like I, linear output capability so like the point at which an amplifier yeah. starts yeah, misbehaving yeah, yeah. Now, I will say that is a very measurable parameter. Totally. <laughs> totally. Like, that's the thing. At the like, risk of being smug. No, no. But, but, I mean, with the whole, like, subjectivist, objectivist thing, like, personally, I would love to be an objectivist if I was able to, you know, uh, if I if I could repeatedly and, and consistently, uh, you know, track my experiences to whatever the measurable thing is if i could properly i think a lot of that has to do with just not looking closely enough at various different things like i think like me and probably most other people who fall into the let's say quote unquote subjectivist camp uh mo i'd say most maybe i'm wrong about this but i think a lot of people would just want a clearer picture right they just want to be able to draw the draw a line between the the measurement and the experience a little bit more strongly and have it be easier to discern what something what that experience is going to be uh you know from the measurement not that i don't think anybody thinks that there's like you know the secret sauce the magic the you know all that stuff um or there's cases well, where I think that there's there's that some people but i don't think oh, for sure there's yeah yeah but like and i think like ruck and i were talking about this a while ago as well but like that that notion of of uh like subjectivist about certain things like a subjectivist in the technical sense but streets willing yeah willing objectivist if <laughs> if we could be more confident in what the picture means <laughs> um i that's kind of how i would categorize myself i think um and i think probably there's a lot of other people as well where that that's one of the reasons why learning about this stuff is so interesting and going down the road of doing all these tests and stuff like that um is is valuable but um we've been going for like three hours now so i oh, definitely I need so to... sorry <laughs> no man thank you so much for doing this um i'm gonna upload this as a podcast and figure out how to piece all this stuff together so i apologize if there's any edits or anything <laughs> like that um but and now i'm talking to the camera um uh, thanks everybody for watching this video or listening to this podcast and we should be up and running with better internet uh for next week and i'll test that during the week actually make sure um, but in any case, uh, thanks to Mad Economist and Cascadia Audio, and uh, we'll see you guys in the next live stream.